Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Cops beat Rodney King and were found not guilty. And the city of Los Angeles revolted. But what we need are honest, non biased police officers. Tupac Shakur gave a poetic voice to this frustrated, rebellious generation. And then it was cashed in on by L.A.-based rap label, Death Row Records, helmed by the nefarious Suge Knight. On the East Coast, a rapper with a smooth flow that went by Notorious B.I.G. rose to prominence, building a brand for the New York label, Bad Boy Records. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. And the East Coast West Coast thing is something that the journalists and people are making uh, just to get paid off and so it can drag out. And here in Vegas, shots were fired. Tupac was hit four times. Six months later, police are investigating the shooting death of rapper Biggie Smalls. He was gunned down. Who killed rapper Notorious B.I.G.? And were LAPD officers involved? The mystery of his murder has gone unsolved for 18 years now. 
using notorious B.I.G. for Tupac's murder has been solved. Russell Poole, responsible for heading up the investigation into Biggie's murder in 1997. I'm Detective uh, Russell Poole. Someone has lost a family member and they deserve to, um, to have the answers. I'm his mother. My son was shot. I would like to know why. Miss Wallace would like to know why. I'm watching the news and like Tupac Shakur was assassinated. Biggest Smalls assassinated. Struck down by assassins, bullets assassinated. Like, no, they wasn't. <laughs> Martin Luther King was assassinated. Malcolm X was assassinated. John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Them two niggas got shot. Them two <laughs> niggas got, got shot. shot. Gotta have the preeminent voice of critical race theory in the 20th and 21st century the great Chris Rock context of white supremacy gusty renegade and for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date Thursday June 10 2021 so I have been told this is our book club. I am excited. That's not to say I'm, you know, bored with uh, the some of the other books uh, that we've read uh, on the program or was not looking forward. Well, I can think of France Fanon is one I can think of that I was not looking forward to reading. But uh, with this one, and, and I think context, I think this is the first time that we've done something like this in the Cows Book Club, but we've read like three consecutive books that are all well we shall see very closely related. I don't have to say we shall see just the sound clip that you just heard most of which other than the great Chris Rock was from the 2018 film City of Lies uh, featuring Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker victim of white supremacy which is odd in and of itself because Forrest Whitaker is portraying a fictionalized version of the author of the book that we are reading which is written by Randall Sullivan who is a white man but in the movie that is based on this book they have transformed Randall Sullivan writer into Forrest Whitaker a black male and then that becomes a part of the storyline which is I don't know we have to talk about that as we go but from that brief snippet that is how the film City of Lies begins with the shooting of LAPD officer Kevin Gaines black male by LAPD officer Frank Liger both of these folks are off duty at the time or at least not in uniform at the time the film starts with that shooting and then it gives context for what was happening during this period 1997 uh, and you heard Johnny Cochran and he didn't say racist he said what we need is non-biased police but that was from Johnny Cochran talking directly in the courtroom during the OJ Simpson trial even before that they started with Rodney King uh, whose name got mentioned over and over and over uh, during Jeffrey Tubin's book and the subsequent revolt is the R word that they chose to use uh, in the film 
uh, the O.J. Simpson trial, and then they got into the nefarious activities of Suge Knight, Death Row Records, and all of that with Tupac and Bad Boy, and also connecting immediately. He said uh, the character who is uh, portraying uh, Russell Poole, who is the white police officer who is investigating the shooting of Officer Gaines, uh, and then saying, wow, it seems like there's a connection between this case and the murder of Christopher Wallace, and these incidents literally happen nine days apart in the same city. He says literally like, you know, a mile or so from each other, these two events, these two murders, like, wow. Dr. Welsing always talked about connecting the dots, and this is this is a book I'm so glad that we're reading now so now we have a much better context for what was happening in Los Angeles District Attorney's Office LAPD mid 1990s then with the Geronimo Pratt case for Tupac Shakur Geronimo Pratt is his godfather we saw the extraordinary harassment terrorism that he and his entire family faced for a quarter century and more even his attorney so this is his god son Tupac Shakur hmm interesting keep in mind as well John Patash's book the FBI's war against Tupac Shakur and black leaders where when he was he's been a guest on this program many times but he asserts hey is death row records is that like a shell company for the CIA and Cointelpro is that what we have here also, I would say, keep in mind another part of the context, why I was so excited to read this book. At this point, we just read a whole lot about Julius Butler, black person who's allowed to have firearms, a convicted felon who's allowed to violate the law with impunity, and uh, powerful white people know that he's violating the law and toting a firearm when he shouldn't, and they don't do anything about it. They turn the other way, and they clean up his record later. Like, when these type of things happen, like, Wow, especially when they are doing things that are harmful to other black people, like, wow, this is being allowed. When Mr. Fuller talks about, hey, we're on a plantation, and on a plantation, someone is in charge. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. If they're in charge and they are allowing this behavior, the question is, why? Why is that the case? Maybe revisit the broadcast first time around with John Patash where he really goes into detail about uh, the murder of Tupac Shakur uh, and the CIA Cointelpro style activities or it seems very similar to the way that Cointelpro and racist white supremacists operated uh, during the 1960s 70s other er Geronimo Pratt other eras of white terrorism here on the plantation anywho I'm super excited. The book that we're reading, Labyrinth by Randall Sullivan, white man. Also keep in mind, this white fella, I believe at one point his theory was that the notorious B.I.G. Diddy at all, that they somehow coordinated, organized, planned uh, the assassination of Tupac Shakur in 1996, uh, a few months before uh, Christopher Wallace uh, was also assassinated. Uh... <laughs> That also, in my view, uh, should be looked at with extraordinary suspicion. That's how I view it. 
uh, I do not, th or that would be another one. Why would racists, white supremacists, who later were charging Sean Combs with a murder, right? That came, you know, a few uh, years later, Johnny Cochran participated in defending uh, Sean Combs in that trial as well. But why would racists allow this? And then you're talking about black people who are entertainers, musicians. Do they have a history of coordinating uh, mob-style gangster hits in other parts of the so-called country uh, and being able to get away with this with total, you know, impunity? I don't believe that to be the case. I could be in error. If that is the case, the people who are most to blame, racist man, racist woman, racist child I could be wrong but I'll give it to you this way metaphor alert in my view thinking that bad boy records Diddy Biggie Smalls organized the mafia style Las Vegas hit successfully against Tupac Shakur and I mean when I say successful like not only is the presumed target neutralized permanently no one is ever prosecuted in fact no one is ever even arrested for this that is a perfect execution of a mob style hit thinking that bad boy entertainment coordinated all of this perfectly is about the same thing as thinking that O.J. Simpson killed all of those people in the lawn back in June 1994, three years previously, same city, where I guess Los Angeles, Tupac is Las Vegas. But we'll make the connections and ponder all of that as we proceed. So much to think about. And I guess we should also keep in mind Nipsey Hussle related to all of this. Lots to ponder. We will get to labyrinth context of white supremacy. Labyrinth, the true story of City of Lies, the murders of Tupac Shakur and Notorious B.I.G., and the implication of the Los Angeles Police Department. Written by Randall Sullivan. Performed by Kevin Free. Prologue. March 18, 1997, North Hollywood, California. Even people in passing cars could see that this was an occasion for steering clear. It was just past four in the afternoon, the beginning of rush hour in Los Angeles, when two men, one white, the other black, became embroiled in what appeared to be an overheated traffic dispute. Both combatants were dressed to display their muscular builds, although in styles at considerable variance. The white man, who drove a battered Buick Regal, wore a pale gray tank top that showed off his bulging biceps, and with it a baseball cap bearing the insignia of a marijuana leaf. He sported a bushy Fu Manchu mustache, and his long, silver-streaked hair was tied back in a ponytail. The black man, who drove a shiny green Mitsubishi Montero, had a shaved head and a goatee, while the breadth of his bare chest showed beneath a green Nike jacket worn open nearly to the navel. 
The Buick had just stopped in heavy traffic at the intersection of Ventura and Lancashire Boulevards when the Montero pulled up on the left, rap music thumping through its open windows. The black man may or may not have caught a look of disgust on the white man's face and began staring fixedly at the Buick, shaking his head. The white man would say he thought the black man must be looking at someone on the sidewalk and turned to check, but the sidewalk was empty. The white man rolled down his window and asked, Can I help you? Roll that window up, you punk motherfucker, the black man shouted back. Get out of my face or I'll put a cap up your ass. What's your problem? the white man asked. I'm your problem, motherfucker, the black man shouted. Pull over right now and I'll kick your motherfucking ass. Yeah, sure, the white man replied. The black man became so enraged that his eyeballs bulged. I'll cap your ass, motherfucker, he screamed. Pull over right now. The man in the Montero punctuated his threat with a series of curious hand gestures, then pointed to the side of the road. The white man nodded and said, All right, let's go. Pull over. It looked as if the two were going to climb out of their cars and go at it right there, but as soon as the Montero parked in a red zone on the other side of the intersection, the Buick sped away, veering south on Cahuenga Boulevard. Screaming curses out his window and pounding on a steering wheel, the enraged black man forced his way back into traffic and took off after the Buick, slaloming between cars, even veering into an oncoming lane at one point. The Montero finally caught up when the Buick was stopped by a red light at Regal Place, four car lengths from an on-ramp to the Hollywood Freeway. As the SUV pulled up next to the sedan, other motorists heard the black man screaming through his passenger side window, then saw him lean toward the Buick and extend his right arm. The white man, who had been shouting back, suddenly ducked his head, banged his chest against the Buick's steering column, and let his foot slip off the brake as the car lurched slightly forward. The Montero's windows were tinted almost to opacity, and witnesses weren't sure whether the black man had a gun, but the hand that came out of the Buick's open window a moment later, as the white man sat up straight again, definitely was filled with an automatic pistol. A woman in a Mercedes sedan who was a long way from her home in Pacific Palisades remembered that the white man wore this very determined, focused expression as he fired off one shot, then a second. The first bullet passed through the passenger side door of the Montero and lodged in a gym bag. The second shot struck the black man on the right side just below his armpit, punctured his heart, and stopped in his left lung. Though only seconds from death, the black man managed to swing his Montero into the left lane and make a U-turn. A woman working in an office across the street looked up when she heard the gunshots and saw, through the SUV's open window, the full face of this black man smiling and grinning, a sarcastic laugh grin, holding the steering wheel with his left hand and pumping his right hand. The black man disappeared from the woman's sight as his Montero coasted into the parking lot of an AM-PM mini-mart and came to rest against the store's front wall. The Buick, now following the Montero, pulled into the same parking lot moments later. Behind the store were two California Highway Patrol officers who had just finished a coffee break when they heard gunshots. The CHP officers swung their separate patrol cars around the west side of the building just in time to see a white male wearing a cap with a marijuana leaf on it pointing a handgun at a black male who was slumped forward in the seat of a green SUV. The CHP officer in the lead braked to an abrupt stop, 
swung open his car door, and crouched behind the vehicle as he drew his sidearm and ordered the white male to drop his weapon. I'm a police officer, the marijuana guy shouted back and pulled on a chain around his neck to lift the gold shield of a Los Angeles Police Department detective above his tank top. He was Frank Liga, an undercover narcotics cop assigned to the Hollywood area field enforcement section. He had never seen the dead man before, Liga said. By the time detectives from the LAPD's elite robbery homicide division arrived on the scene, however, they knew not only the dead man's identity, but also what it meant. The deceased was Kevin Gaines, an LAPD officer for the past seven years. Currently assigned to the department's Pacific Division, Gaines was off-duty at the time of his death. As soon as we found out that the dead guy was a black police officer, we knew we were stepping into a political minefield, recalled Russell Poole, who had become lead detective in the LAPD's criminal investigation of the shooting. What Poole couldn't begin to imagine was how widespread and well-concealed those minds were laid. The detective began to experience a distinct sense of foreboding, however, when a computer check revealed that the Montero was registered to the address of a production company owned by Death Row Records. Nightlife, it was called. Part 1. The Race Card Detective Poole is an absolutely outstanding detective. He now has nine and a half years of homicide experience and has handled every possible situation. He is hardworking, loyal, productive, thorough, and reliable. His contact with the public is always courteous and professional. He is a definite asset to the Los Angeles Police Department. From the final performance evaluation report filed on Detective Russell Poole before his transfer to the LAPD's Elite Robbery Homicide Division in late 1996. Chapter 1 It was after dark by the time Russell Poole arrived at the shooting scene. Cahuenga Boulevard, the main thoroughfare linking downtown Los Angeles to the San Fernando Valley, was closed off in both directions by yellow police tape and patrol cars with flashing lights. The enclosed area was crawling with brass, captains as well as lieutenants. Poole's squad leader, Lieutenant Pat Conmay, his partner, Detective Supervisor Fred Miller, and the members of the LAPD's officer-involved shooting team were all standing in a group. The internal affairs investigators, as always, kept to themselves. Frank Liga was still at the scene and had been informed that the dead man was a police officer. Liga was very confident at that time, Poole recalled. He felt certain he had done nothing wrong. I don't think he realized that the fact Gaines was black was going to be as much of a problem for him as it was. The OIS team drove Liga back to the North Hollywood station to take his statement. Poole was informed that his assignment would be to investigate a possible charge of assault with a deadly weapon against the undercover detective. Poole was collecting spent cartridges and making measurements of the shooting scene when he and Miller received a tip that Gaines, although married, had been living with a girlfriend at an address in the Hollywood Hills. The two detectives drove to the Multiview Avenue address and found themselves at the gated driveway of a mansion belonging to the notorious gangster rap mogul Marion Suge Knight, CEO of Death Row Records. Gaines's girlfriend was Knight's estranged wife, Sharitha. 
Sharitha Knight already had been informed of Gaines's death and was cried out by the time Poole and Miller interviewed her. Sharitha's mother, who introduced herself as Mrs. Golden, did most of the talking at first, explaining that her daughter was married to, but separated from, Suge Knight, and that Kevin was her boyfriend. They had seen Kevin only a few hours earlier, Mrs. Golden told the detectives. He said he was going to the gym and intended to pick up new tires for the Montero on his way home. Sharitha did say that Kevin had done some security work for Death Row, but she gave no details, Poole recalled. Sharitha Knight had met Gaines in 1993 at a gas station on La Brea Avenue, just south of the Santa Monica Freeway. Gaines, who had been reprimanded repeatedly for attempting to pick up women while on duty, pulled up in his patrol car next to her Mercedes, Sharitha said, and began a casual conversation that grew more animated when she told the officer who she was and described her mansion in the hills above Coenga Pass. Gaines bet the woman dinner that she was exaggerating and the two began dating exclusively after he paid off. Gaines soon took up residence in the mansion, separated by 25 miles and $2 million from the house in Gardena where his wife, Georgia, and their two children lived. Sharitha was working at the time as Snoop Dogg's manager and obtained work for Gaines as the rapper's bodyguard. Poole and his partner made no protest when Sharitha Knight cut the interview short after less than half an hour. This was her boyfriend, and she was distraught, Poole explained. It was a delicate situation. As he drove back down Coenga Pass toward the LAPD's North Hollywood station to interview Frank Liga, Poole recalled, I thought to myself, this case is going to take me to places I've never been. Poole already had been to places that few people raised in the suburbs ever see. Now a burly forty-year-old with a sunburnt squint and glints of silver in his reddish-blonde hair, Poole had been a slim twenty-two-year-old with freckled cheeks and bright green eyes when he accepted his first assignment with the LAPD as a patrol officer in Southwest Division, working out of a station near the Coliseum. The department didn't try to prepare me for what it was to be a white officer in a black neighborhood because there's no way to do that, he recalled, but you learn real quick. All of a sudden, this shy kid from La Mirada is working ten hours a day in south-central Los Angeles. It's like you've been given a front-row seat on life in the inner city. At La Mirada High School, situated on the border between Orange and Los Angeles counties, Poole had been voted most valuable player on a baseball team that won the Suburban League Championship. Pete Rose was his childhood idol, and Poole's teammates tagged him with Rose's nickname, Charlie Hustle. I ran everywhere I went, full blast. He explained. It was the way I was brought up, to give all you had, all the time. His father was a 27-year veteran of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, who had spent much of his career as a supervising sergeant of the Detective Bureau at Norwalk Station. I looked up to my dad, Poole recalled. He had been in the Marine Corps during the Korean War, and I used to love to look at his medals. We were a very traditional family. My father was the breadwinner. My mom stayed home and took care of us kids. My two sisters shared one bedroom, while my brother Gary and I shared another. I thought that was pretty much how everybody lived. His father never encouraged him to become a cop, and Poole kept his dream of playing baseball in the major leagues alive until a torn rotator cuff during his second season at Cerritos College ended his athletic career. Although he graduated with a degree in criminal justice, the young man went to work in a supermarket and was night manager at an Alpha Beta store when he married his wife, Megan, in 1979. 
The two had known each other since they were children, and the bride wondered out loud whether her young husband would be satisfied with a comfortable life in La Mirada. Her question was answered less than a year later, in the autumn of 1980, when Russell Poole entered the Los Angeles Police Academy. I decided that I needed something more stimulating than the grocery business, he explained. Fewer than half of those who entered Poole's Police Academy class would finish with him. The culture of the LAPD back then was quasi-military, recalled Poole, who liked it that way. Every day began with a three-mile run that ended with alternating sets of pull-ups and push-ups, followed by wind sprints. I went into the academy at a pretty solid 185 pounds and finished at a little over 165, he recalled. But you learned pretty fast that physical ability wasn't the point. Character was. They wanted to see whether you would drop out or keep trying. Would you quit if you got cramps while you were running, or would you grind it out, cry it out, gut it out? A lot of the women in the class impressed me in that way. Only about a year after Poole graduated, though, a series of lawsuits forced the Academy to lower its standards to admit more of the black candidates who had applied and to make it easier for those applicants to make it through. After that, if you were lousy or wouldn't try hard enough, they'd pat you on the back and say, it's okay, we have remedial classes you can take, Poole recalled. They'd get you counseling. They also started lowering the standards on written tests in order to encourage diversity and avoid controversy. Poole didn't think the department was doing its new recruits any favors. When you get out on the streets, nobody's going to baby you there, he explained. You're going to be caught in situations where all you can do is survive. The more harrowing the circumstance, the more intense the experience of connection to one's fellow officers, as Poole discovered soon after his assignment to patrol duty in south-central L.A. What I remember most about those early days was how it felt to stop a car and approach it from the rear, Poole recalled. The whole key was to stay alert, but not come on aggressive. On patrol, you had to be ready for anything. You might go through a whole day totally bored, then plunge into an experience of complete terror 15 minutes before the end of your shift. The most feared part of Southwest Division was an area called the Jungle, a collection of apartment buildings along Martin Luther King Boulevard between Crenshaw and La Brea that was surrounded by huge, droopy eucalyptus trees. All that low-hanging foliage was what made the jungle so dangerous— along with an unusual layout of buildings that created a lot of places where a suspect could hide until an officer was almost on top of him. Any time we went in there, the only color we saw when we looked at each other was the blue of our uniforms, Poole recalled. Before crack cocaine, PCP was the street drug of choice in the ghetto, and Poole had never been more frightened than the first time he was attacked by a suspect high on horse tranquilizer. I had dropped my guard because at first he appeared to be friendly. Hi, officer, how you doing? But when he got close, he grabbed for my throat, Poole recalled. My first instinct was to throw out my hands to push his face back, but he caught my left forefinger in his mouth and bit it all the way down to the bone. My partner was trying to hit him upside the head to get him to release, and finally he did, but we went to the ground and the guy was spitting and scratching and punching and kicking. He was shredding our shirts and uniforms, scratching our arms and faces. I had deep cuts all over my face, and so did my partner. Blood was everywhere, and my finger was dangling, barely attached. Pretty soon we were surrounded by this big crowd of people, all black, and this was very scary for me because I was fairly new and had never been in a situation like that. We didn't have handheld radios back then, so 
I looked up at this one older black man and said, please get on that radio and request help. I didn't want to draw my gun, so I took out my sap and hit the guy across the forehead. It didn't even phase him. So I hit him a second time, as hard as I could, and that split his head open. Right about then, I started hearing those faint sirens from far away, gradually getting louder and louder. Nothing ever sounded better to me. And in a couple of minutes, there were like 20 LAPD patrol cars on the scene, with cops of all colors, and the crowd was breaking up. I remember thinking, this is what they meant by backing each other up and being there when another officer needs you. It made me feel really good to be part of this organization filled with people I could count on, no matter where they came from. One of Poole's first mentors was a black training officer named Richard Lett, a shy, nice man who had about 15 years on the job. During the entire time they worked together, Poole recalled, the two of them never spoke once about communicating across racial lines. He saw that I take people as they come, and so he really didn't think it was necessary, Poole recalled. I was making friends of all races, and I felt this was my education in life. My time as a patrol officer taught me how to connect with people from very different backgrounds, and I learned not to make general assumptions about anyone. Back in those days, the LAPD talked about itself as a family, Poole recalled. We greeted each other with hugs, brother officer, sister officer, civilian employees. The only discordant note was sounded at roll calls, where black officers invariably sat in the section of the room separate from the white and Hispanic officers who tended to intermingle. But nobody ever talked about it, Poole remembered. Everything changed in 1991, though, when the videotaped beating of Rodney King by four LAPD officers at the end of a vehicle pursuit was broadcast on local television. Poole was at home ironing a shirt the first time he saw it. I remember thinking, oh, shit. I wonder how many times they're going to play that. I never imagined it would be hundreds and hundreds. That wasn't the LAPD I knew, but it became the LAPD to the rest of the world, and that was awful to live with. It created terrible tensions within the department. Getting along with both civilians and your fellow officers along racial lines suddenly became a lot more difficult. Even people you thought were friends weren't saying hi when you passed them in the hallway. The riots that followed the acquittal of the four officers accused in the Rodney King beating at their first trial in Simi Valley only increased racial divisions within the LAPD. The department maintained a mobilization plan for such emergencies, but for some reason it wasn't implemented. Chief Darrell Gates had been relieved of duty by the first black president of the Los Angeles Police Commission and then reinstated, but his position was weakened. Everybody wanted to be the new chief. Poole recalled. All these deputy chiefs were practically begging Gates to retire so they could take over, and the early response to the riots was controlled by some of these same people, who really didn't mind if the LAPD looked bad because it would make Chief Gates look bad. We had subcommanders pulling units out of the area around Florence and Normandy when they should have been pouring in. When Gates, who had been attending a function in Mandeville Canyon, finally arrived at the LAPD command post in the bus depot at 54th and Van Ness, he was astonished to find captains and lieutenants standing around in groups. When a black captain approached him carrying a coffee cup, Gates slapped the cup out of the man's hands and shouted, What the fuck is happening? Why aren't my men out there deployed? Even before the rioting stopped, word of this incident had spread through the department, and people of different races were even more uncomfortable with each other, Poole remembered. By the time Gates was replaced by the LAPD's first black chief, Willie Williams, an import from Philadelphia, 
the department had become an institution seething with thinly veiled resentments. White officers did not doubt that Williams had won the job with the color of his skin, while black officers wondered why the position hadn't gone to the LAPD's highest-ranking African-American, Assistant Chief Bernard Parks. To a lot of people, and for the longest time, it had looked as if Bernie Parks might be the one man who could reconcile the contradictory legacies that he had inherited from his two most notable predecessors, William H. Parker and Homer Broom. During the 1930s and 40s, Parker had occupied the unenviable position of a clean cop in a dirty department. The LAPD of that period was almost astonishingly corrupt. Los Angeles's mayor sold hiring and promotion exams out of his office in City Hall, while vice officers earned the bulk of their income by protecting prostitutes, pimps, and pornographers. At one point, the LAPD's head of intelligence was sent to San Quentin for bombing the car of an investigator who had been hired by civic reformers to ferret out crooked cops. When Parker was appointed Los Angeles police chief in 1950, conditions within the department changed dramatically. Parker's insistence on integrity was so adamant that he fired officers for the sort of infractions that wouldn't have resulted in an admonishment a few years earlier. The LAPD's new chief even demanded that his officers pay for their own coffee. Parker, who coined the phrase thin blue line, also made the LAPD over into an ultra-efficient police force renowned for the discipline, mobility, and aggressiveness that allowed it to cover the enormous geographical area of Los Angeles with fewer than one-fifth the number of officers employed by the New York Police Department. By the early 1960s, LAPD officers believed that they belonged to the best police department in the world, and by most measures, they were right. Racial sensitivity was not a theme that resonated particularly well with Chief Parker, however. The mission he gave LAPD officers to stop crime before it happens inevitably led to a concentration of police forces in south-central Los Angeles. Poor black males committed crime well out of proportion to their share of the population, and for the LAPD of William Parker, that was the essential point. The chief was not particularly interested in complaints against white cops who beat the black suspects, or white ones for that matter, who were guilty of contempt of officer. The black LAPD officer who most successfully challenged the petty injustices of the period was Commander Homer Broom. He had joined the LAPD in 1954, the same year the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the concept of separate but equal, and rose steadily through the ranks for the next quarter century. Broom would be best remembered, however, for his very last appearance in an LAPD uniform. This was at his retirement dinner in the Ambassador Hotel during February of 1979. Los Angeles's mayor and police chief were in attendance, along with dozens of local politicians, all there to take advantage of an occasion when the observation of one man's success could be made into a milestone of community progress. Broom was living proof, one speaker observed, that color was no obstacle to success in Los Angeles. The audience naturally was shocked when the guest of honor rode a wave of applause to the microphone and, instead of responding with the thanks that were expected, chose to remind his listeners of some unpleasant facts. Although the LAPD had employed black officers since 1886, Broom began, it was not until 1969, when he was promoted to captain, that one had occupied a command position within the department. Those who knew the LAPD's history did not want to be reminded that during the 1920s, 
Chief Lewis Oakes had been a proud member of the Ku Klux Klan, or that in the years before World War II, the department had restricted black officers almost entirely to foot traffic beats along Alameda Avenue, permitting just a few of them to patrol in jitney cars, and then only between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., when they were not likely to be noticed. When the LAPD appointed its first two black watch commanders in 1940, Broom recalled, the move was heralded as a huge leap forward, but the backsliding began almost immediately. To prevent the two new lieutenants from commanding white personnel, an all-black morning watch was established. And department administrators soon decided that two black lieutenants were one too many. After learning of his demotion from an article in the Evening Herald, Earl Brody needed another three years just to regain the rank of sergeant. When he failed repeatedly to win a second promotion to lieutenant, Brody resigned from the department and enrolled in law school. Eventually, he became a superior court judge of Los Angeles County. His experience was repeated again and again. The LAPD's refusal to promote black officers to command rank had resulted in the resignations or early retirements of men who had become city councilmen, municipal court judges, Los Angeles port warden, and the city's first black mayor, Tom Bradley. It was Bradley who had made the first attempt to integrate the LAPD. In 1960, Bradley, only the third black lieutenant in the department's history, found three white officers who were willing to share a single patrol car with black partners in separate shifts. When word leaked out, however, the white officers began to absorb a barrage of abuse from their cohorts, and each of the three eventually explained to Bradley that he would have to withdraw from the experiment. William Parker would, to his credit, issue an order to fully integrate the LAPD in 1963, but by then Tom Bradley was gone, having submitted his resignation one year earlier. The indignities and abuses that had become a fundamental condition of relations between white police officers and black citizens in Los Angeles would explode during the late summer of 1965 into the most destructive display of civil disobedience in modern U.S. history. It began when a black teenager was arrested for drunk driving by a white motorcycle officer on the evening of August 11th. By the time it was over, battles between police and more than 10,000 black civilians had raged for six days across an area of 46.5 square miles, leaving 34 persons dead, 1,032 injured, and more than 600 buildings burned and looted. Homer Broom was promoted to lieutenant one year later, replacing Tom Bradley as the LAPD's single black watch commander. Over the next ten years, twelve more black people were promoted to lieutenant, with five rising to captain and two to commander. There were mutterings, however, that LAPD administrators had chosen only the most compliant of black officers and were moving them from job to job so that they could boast about breaking the race barrier in this position or that one. The sole black commander to win the trust and admiration of white superiors without being labeled a lackey by black peers was Bernard Parks. His steady advance through the ranks of the LAPD was rare and remarkable. Parks had been negotiating such difficult passages since his senior year in high school when he was elected president of a nearly all-white class. As a young LAPD officer, he was singled out for special attention by Chief Ed Davis, who made Parks first his driver, then his protege. Daryl Gates, despite a reputation as a man who was not particularly fond of people with dark complexions, 
had promoted Parks from lieutenant to captain to commander to deputy chief to assistant chief, making him the number two man in the department. Parks, though, was devastated when the Los Angeles City Council chose Willie Williams as the LAPD's first black chief. The job of police chief in Los Angeles was not quite what it had once been, of course. In the aftermath of the 1992 Los Angeles riots, a commission headed by former U.S. Secretary of State Warren Christopher had created the office of a civilian inspector general to oversee the police department, while LAPD chiefs were limited to five-year terms. It did not help that Willie Williams became, by virtually every account, the worst LAPD chief of the modern era. Labeled a bungler within a few months of taking the job, Williams destroyed any hope for political survival when he demoted Bernie Parks to deputy chief. Williams' decision to advise the news media of the demotion before personally informing Parks made him look especially despicable. Only through the intervention of the city council did Parks obtain the plum assignment of Operations Bureau, a job that gave him control over the most politically powerful division of the LAPD, Internal Affairs. Embittered, Parks dug in until he became the immovable object that blocked the eminently resistible force of Willie Williams, who would spend his last three years in Los Angeles as, essentially, the lame-duck chief of a police department that many felt was falling apart all around him. Senior police officials soon began to complain openly that departmental standards had virtually collapsed and that the Los Angeles City Council's cure for the LAPD's racial ills might be worse than the disease itself. The written examinations that long had been the great equalizer for LAPD officers seeking promotion were steadily discounted because black candidates in general did far worse on them than did white candidates. Background checks became increasingly cursory while minor crimes or a juvenile record no longer barred applicants from gaining admission to the Los Angeles Police Academy, because liberals had successfully argued that this limited the number of black people and Hispanics who could join the LAPD. Behavior by a police officer that would have resulted in immediate dismissal only a decade earlier now was either overlooked or met with requests that the offending officer seek counseling. I don't think Willie Williams was personally corrupt, Russell Poole said, but his command staff definitely was, and a lot of the best captains and lieutenants in the LAPD either retired or refused to seek promotions while he was chief. They didn't want to be part of what was going on in the Parker Center. And meanwhile, Chief Williams made enemies of people who were in positions where they could hurt him. Williams's appointment as LAPD chief produced at least some improvement in relations between the department's black and white officers. But then, along came the O.J. Simpson case, Poole recalled, and suddenly racial tensions were inflamed again. A lot of the black officers said they thought Simpson was innocent, and that was just an outrage to the rest of us because it was so obvious that he was guilty. So suddenly, you not only had black officers angry at white officers, but also white officers angry at black officers. That situation got a lot worse when the Mark Furman tapes came out and people heard this white detective saying nigger this and nigger that. Furman was just an arrogant fool shooting off his mouth to impress a woman, but he did so much damage. So did the subsequent spectacle of black citizens in the streets of Los Angeles cheering the acquittal of a man who had gotten away with murder. By early 1997, most LAPD officers knew that Willie Williams would not be rehired as chief when his five-year term expired that August. 
A huge majority of the department's rank-and-file officers endorsed the appointment of Deputy Chief Mark Croker as Williams's replacement, but the powers that be seemed to be leaning toward the man favored by the LAPD's black cops, Bernie Parks. So we had this atmosphere where any case involving racial issues was overshadowed by the politicians, Poole explained. Everybody on the department was afraid to make a mistake or even to do the right thing if it exposed them to criticism. Poole could claim more immunity to charges of racial insensitivity than nearly any other white officer in the department. During his 16 and a half years on the job, he had been partnered with a series of black officers who uniformly praised his ability to deal with the citizens of South Central Los Angeles. At South Bureau Homicide, he regularly sat in on meetings of the Black Officers Organization, the Oscar Joel Bryant Association. And as a patrol officer in Southwest Division, Poole had been widely admired for insisting that if the LAPD was going to bust black gangbangers for spraying freeway underpasses with graffiti, then it had to do the same when it caught the fraternity boys from USC painting city streets with their insignia. Poole became a minor celebrity within the department when he arrested the white starting quarterback of USC's football team. As Poole soon would discover, however, neither his sterling reputation nor Frank Liga's persuasive story of self-defense would be enough to protect them in a maze where corpses collected in cul-de-sacs and criminals with badges blocked the exits. From Sharitha Knight's house, Poole and Detective Supervisor Miller drove to the LAPD's North Hollywood station to interview Frank Liga. The detectives already knew that Liga had started his day with a practice session at the LAPD shooting range, scoring 100% with both a 12-gauge shotgun and the same Beretta pistol that had killed Kevin Gaines. Liga then joined seven other undercover officers in a surveillance operation that ended shortly before 4 p.m., when the group was ordered to return to its office. During the drive back to Hollywood, the other members of the team drove both ahead of and behind Liga in separate vehicles. Liga said he had no idea what set Gaines off initially, describing his fellow officer as a full-on gangbanger. For one thing, the guy was driving a green SUV, which had become the vehicle of choice for both Crips and Bloods. And he had recognized those hand gestures Gaines made as West Coast gang signs, Liga said. Describing his verbal exchange with Gaines and the subsequent car chase, Liga sounded genuinely frightened. As he saw Gaines pursuing him south on Cahuenga Boulevard, Liga said, he activated the concealed radio in his car with his left foot and spoke into the microphone hidden behind a visor at the top of his windshield, using tactical frequency 2 to advise the other members of his team that he needed assistance with a black guy in a green jeep who was acting crazy and possibly had a gun. When he was stopped by the red light at Regal Place and looked in his rearview mirror to see Gaines's vehicle closing fast, Liga said, he drew his own pistol and placed it on his lap. Gaines was shouting at the top of his lungs when he braked to a stop in the far left lane, Liga said, screaming, I'll cap you, motherfucker, as he raised a pistol and pointed it through his open passenger side window. He knew cap was street slang for kill and fired his own weapon first because he believed he was about to be shot. He had never seen Kevin Gaines before and did not realize the mess he was in, Liga said, until his supervisor, Dennis Zuner, arrived on the scene and told him, You're going to have to suck this one up, Frank. The guy was a policeman. Poole returned to the shooting scene from the North Hollywood station and did not get home until almost 3 a.m. 
He caught four hours sleep, then awoke the next morning to the first of many Cop Kills Cop headlines that would be published worldwide. This was followed shortly by the news that as many as a dozen off-duty black police officers had begun to canvass the neighborhood surrounding the shooting scene, looking for witnesses who would dirty up Liga. The first to complain was an employee of the coffee importing company whose offices were directly across from the intersection where Gaines had been shot. Five black men wearing civilian clothes showed up at her place of business that day, the woman said, told her they were police officers, and began to question her in a manner she found intimidating. When the man who did most of the talking began trying to get me to change my story, the woman said, she demanded proof that he was a police officer. The man showed her his badge, the woman explained, and she wrote down the name and serial number. He was Derwin Henderson, a close friend and former partner of Gaines. Several other witnesses told LAPD investigators that the black officers who visited them had tried to put words in their mouths and that they had been shaken by the experience. Liga's version of events was supported by every bit of available evidence, however. Several members of his undercover team, as well as a clerk assigned to monitor tactical frequency radio calls at the LAPD's West Bureau Narcotics Unit, had heard the detective turn on his radio shortly before the shooting and announce in an excited voice, I've got a problem. There's a black guy in a green jeep on my ass. I need you guys. I think he's got a gun, they heard Liga call in an even louder voice a few moments after that. Where are you guys? Approximately 30 seconds later, the members of Liga's team heard him shout, I just shot somebody. I need help. Witnesses to the shooting gave statements that agreed with Liga's account in every detail. On the floor of the Montero next to Kevin Gaines's body, the two CHP officers on the scene had found a Smith & Wesson 9mm semi-automatic pistol with a hollow-point round in the chamber and 11 more bullets like it in the magazine. The gun was registered to Gaines. Pressure on Frank Liga, though, continued to mount. Even as media trucks laid siege to the detective's home, Rumors spread that Liga was part of a white supremacist group that had targeted Gaines as a warning to uppity black cops, or that Liga had killed Gaines to cover up his part in a drug deal gone bad, or that Liga had a history of armed attacks on black people and the LAPD was covering it up. Detectives involved in the investigation of the shooting, however, already knew that the bad cop in this case was Kevin Gaines. Within 48 hours of Gaines's death, Poole and Miller learned that the dead officer had been involved in at least four other off-duty roadway incidents in which he had threatened motorists with violence. One of these drivers was retired LAPD detective Sig Sheehan, who reported that during the later summer of 1996, Gaines had used a dark green Mitsubishi Montero to cut him off as he turned out of the Valley Credit Union parking lot on Sherman Way. He responded by flipping the Montero's driver off, Sheehan admitted. Gaines became so enraged that he attempted to run Sheehan's car off the road, then began motioning to pull over. When he did exactly that, Sheehan said, Gaines braked to a stop, jumped out of his SUV, and began shouting, Hey, motherfucker, you going around giving people the finger? I ought to cap you. I ought to blow your motherfucking head off. Only when he told Gaines, You'd better be a faster shot than me then began repeating the Montero's license plate number out loud, Sheehan said, did a flustered Gaines climb back into his vehicle and burn rubber as he sped from the scene. 
A civilian named Alex Slay reported that just two weeks before his death, Gaines, accompanied by an attractive black woman, had swerved the green Montero in front of him so sharply that he was forced to change lanes to avoid a collision. When he became infuriated, Slay said, Gaines shouted at him through his open window, Do you have a problem? Because we can settle this quick. He asked what that meant, Slay said, and Gaines replied, I have this and this, then held up a pistol and an LAPD badge. Gaines and his female passenger were laughing hysterically, Slay said, as they peeled away. A Pacific Bell repairman told investigators that he had been on Laurel Canyon Boulevard just north of the Hollywood Freeway when Gaines pulled up alongside his truck in an SUV and began shouting that he was going to put a cap up my ass. He wasn't sure what he had done to offend the driver of the SUV, the repairman said, and didn't know how seriously to take the threat since the nice-looking black female in the passenger seat was laughing and grinning. Suddenly, though, the driver pulled up right next to the truck's open passenger side window and pointed a gun at him, the repairman recalled. Fortunately, instead of firing, the driver made an abrupt U-turn and entered a Hollywood freeway on-ramp. Gaines's commander in Pacific Division, Captain David Doan, advised Poole that Gaines had been accused repeatedly of discourtesy and unnecessary force in his dealings with white, Hispanic, and Asian suspects. Doan described Gaines as a mediocre officer and said the man had a history of domestic violence. His wife Georgia twice had called the police to complain that Gaines was beating her, but both times recanted. Internal affairs investigators confirmed reports that Gaines had been detained by LAPD officers on three separate occasions while off-duty. The first incident had occurred on Sunset Boulevard when Gaines stuck his head through the moonroof of a passing limousine and shouted at some passing cops, Fuck the police. When they pulled the limousine over, officers said, Gaines did his best to provoke a physical confrontation before finally identifying himself as an LAPD officer. Gaines also had been investigated by the LAPD for stealing another officer's customized handcuffs and scratching out his initials. Gaines should have been fired for that offense, but Internal Affairs claimed to have misplaced the file. All these reports of the slain officer's misbehavior had been compiled during the investigation of an even more bizarre incident involving Gaines. On the afternoon of August 16, 1996, two separate patrol cars from the LAPD's North Hollywood Division responded to a report that an assault with a deadly weapon had just taken place at a home on Multiview Avenue where Sharitha Knight lived. Shots had been fired, an anonymous caller told the 911 operator, and there was a possible victim down by the pool area. When four LAPD officers arrived at the address, they were confronted by Kevin Gaines. Gaines answered the first few questions they asked, the officers agreed, but then became uncooperative, refusing them access to the residence. At one point, Gaines threw his shoulder into Officer Pity Gonzalez and was placed in handcuffs. I'm a police officer three just like you, motherfucker, Gaines told him, according to Gonzalez. I work at Pacific, and you motherfuckers are not coming in. Tell these motherfucking assholes to take the cuffs off me, motherfucker. Gaines also said he hated fucking cops, Gonzalez recalled. What made the incident really strange, though, was that when LAPD officers listened to the tape of the 911 call made from a payphone near Sharitha Knight's home, reporting that someone had been shot at the Multiview mansion, they unanimously agreed that the voice of the caller belonged to Kevin Gaines. 
Perhaps oddest of all, Gaines had described himself as the suspect, a black male with a muscular build, 5 foot 10, 200 pounds, 30 years old. Poole would conclude that Gaines's intention in making the call had been to produce an incident that might provide grounds for a lawsuit. And this Gaines had accomplished, persuading former Rodney King attorney Milton Grimes to file a multi-million dollar court claim against the city of Los Angeles, alleging that the incident had damaged the emotional and psychological well-being of a competent African-American adult. Attempting to profit financially is what elevates a fraudulent 911 call from a misdemeanor to a felony, Poole explained, and I can guarantee that any civilian who did what Gaines did would have faced prison time. Yet Kevin Gaines was never charged with any crime at all. The investigation of his conduct was handed over to Internal Affairs, which proceeded to build its case for Gaines's dismissal from the department with such deliberation that from outside it looked like a stall. I was completely shocked when I read the LAPD reports about Gaines's criminal behavior, Poole recalled, because both Willie Williams and especially Chief Parks had to have known about this stuff for months. Yet they both showed up at Gaines's funeral and stood there nodding as Gaines was praised as this great police officer and fine family man. They knew what he was, but neither of them said a word. And meanwhile, Frank Liga is just hanging out there getting crucified in the media. Liga's media crucifixion was orchestrated mainly by O.J. Simpson's attorney, Johnny Cochran, who had filed a $25 million lawsuit against the city on behalf of Kevin Gaines's family. As soon as Cochran got involved in this case, the race card was being played, Liga recalled. Suddenly I saw myself being described in the media as a racist, out-of-control cop with a history. A week after the funeral, nearly a dozen television cameras were positioned inside the First African Methodist Church, where nearly 40 black police officers, most of them members of the Oscar Joel Bryant Association, joined Gaines's family in venting their outrage over the shooting in North Hollywood. The Inglewood City Council presented the Gaines family with a plaque that recognized the dead man as an honorable and fine police officer who was killed in the line of duty. Spokespersons for the activist group Police Watch said they believed the shooting had been racially motivated. Online postings described Gaines as a target of LAPD harassment and insisted that physical evidence points to a cover-up. The Los Angeles Watts Times and Louis Farrakhan's The Final Call published articles that all but portrayed Frank Liga as a cold-blooded killer. After his transfer from the undercover unit to an office assignment, Liga was not only shunned by many fellow officers, but also subjected to a series of anonymous death threats. Even though it had been reported by the media and was unchallenged by even a single witness that Frank Liga and Kevin Gaines had never met before the day of the shooting, the president of the Oscar Joel Bryant Association, LAPD Sergeant Leonard Ross, told the Los Angeles Daily News that a number of white officers had envied Gaines's lifestyle. I'll say it, Ross told the newspaper. There were a number of officers who weren't black who were jealous of his ability and resources. Frank Liga received almost no support from the LAPD brass until Russell Poole presented them with a piece of evidence that ultimately vindicated the undercover officer. This was a videotape shot from a surveillance camera aimed out the front door of the AMPM mini-mart where Kevin Gaines had died. The tape clearly showed Liga's Buick being chased by Gaines's Montero, then recorded the sound of two gunshots fired two seconds apart in a controlled pattern, just as Liga had claimed. 
shortly after the Montero passed out of the camera's range. The Montero re-entered the picture 13 seconds later as it coasted into the Minimart's parking lot. I'm glad I got that tape when I did, Poole recalled, because the very next day Johnny Cochran's people showed up at the market and tried to buy it. The owner called me up and said, I need my tape back. I said, sorry, pal, it's evidence. He said, I'm going to get my attorney and sue. I said, see you in court. When I saw what was on the tape, I was awfully happy I kept it. Cochran's incursion into the case changed everything for the LAPD detectives in charge of the investigation. As soon as Cochran gets involved, the brass is too, Poole recalled. They're all putting their heads together and figuring out how to control this thing. And then we had Farrakhan's people following the case. It was almost like the racial aspect of this thing was taking on a life of its own. Two days after the shooting, Captain Doan of Pacific Division reported to Internal Affairs that he sensed a growing divisiveness among his officers along racial lines. Pretty soon after that, we're getting reports from all over the city about debates between black officers and all other police officers about who was at fault here, Poole recalled. We were told that a group of officers almost came to blows at a gas pump. But nobody really knew the truth about gangs. If they had, I think most of the black officers would have backed off. Frank Liga knew that Detective Poole was his hope for vindication. I filled him in about Gaines's past bad conduct, and Liga needed to hear that because nobody was on his side and the media was pounding him relentlessly, Poole said. I told him to hang tough, but I also had to tell him that the brass didn't seem to want to make any of this information public. I said, Frank, it's out of my control, but... I'm getting a funny feeling. They don't want me to investigate Gaines's background. He said, you're kidding. I said, sorry, that's the orders. But I want you to know that any information I collect, I am writing down and passing along. And I'm convinced that the truth will come out eventually. What worried me, though, was that everything seemed to be funneled into Internal Affairs Division. I'm beginning to understand that this is how they control an investigation and limit what comes out in the media. I see how each report that the IA investigators file is a little more watered down than the one before it. But even then, I was shocked when I saw the final internal affairs report because of how much they left out. It was amazingly incomplete. And Chief Parks was in charge of that. Deputy Chief Parks and his internal affairs investigators also were in charge of investigating the complaints made by witnesses about the bullying tactics of Derwin Henderson and the other off-duty black officers who had questioned them. After interviewing the woman who worked at the coffee company, Poole and Miller reported that they believed Henderson's conduct had crossed the line into felony intimidation of a witness. One day later, an order came down from the upper echelon of Internal Affairs Division that Henderson was to be served with a stay-away order, then placed under surveillance by a team of IA investigators. That surveillance lasted only one day, however. When the IA investigators reported that they had followed Henderson to three locations they suspected might be bookmaking locations, they immediately were advised that surveillance of Henderson is discontinued pending further direction. Even when Henderson showed up at the LAPD's Scientific Investigation Division to take personal possession of the Green Montero, no order to resume surveillance was issued. Henderson already had committed what would have been considered a serious crime if a civilian did it, Poole said, but it was becoming obvious no charges would be filed. Internal Affairs also made little effort to identify the other officers who accompanied Henderson when he questioned witnesses to the Gaines-Liga shooting. 
The coffee company employee, who by now was so worried about her personal safety that she requested LAPD protection, refused to identify two black Pacific Division officers, Bruce Stallworth and Darrell Matthews, as members of the group that had been with Henderson when he showed up at her office. On the night of the shooting, Stallworth had been paged by Sharitha Knight in the presence of Captain Doan, and Matthews was Stallworth's closest companion. The next time the LAPD detectives contacted the woman from the coffee company, she informed them that she had quit her job and was moving to Arizona. That's how scared she was by the publicity and by Henderson's aggression, Poole recalled. But when she left the state, IA used this as an excuse to drop the criminal investigation and made the case an internal investigation. In the end, Henderson would receive a slap on the wrist suspension, while none of the other officers involved were even identified, let alone disciplined. I'd been on the department for almost 17 years, and I'd never seen anything like this, Poole recalled. But I was new to robbery homicide and had never worked out of Parker Center before. So I kept my mouth shut and told myself they did things differently downtown. At the same time, though, I promised myself that I would not let the politics of this case control my investigation. I figured if I did everything by the book, I was covered. That shows you how little I knew. Um, and then they... Context of white supremacy. So that is audio segment one. We'll pick up on chapter two, which is titled N-I-N-E, nine. Title of chapter two, that's what we'll pick up at. Uh, if you have questions, comments, observations on the first audio segment, the number to dial, 720 716-7300 the code 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 720 716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Wow. Lots to process uh, from our first portion of the reading. I guess, number one, if folks have seen the film City of Lies, 2018, Forrest Whitaker, Johnny Depp, uh, you can, you know... Let us know, because that uh, film is based on this book portraying the author and uh, Russell Poole, the lead uh, investigator. Again, that film, now I find it confusing. Now we're reading the book. I can, I can ponder on it for the next few weeks or so. They have switched it around so that the author, Randall Sullivan, white man, has become a black male, Forrest Whitaker. They even change his... Uh, name around Jack Jackson I think is what they call him but yeah and then they even use that racial component with this black guy covering all that anywho we haven't even gotten to the murders of Tupac Shakur and Notorious B.I.G we're still with the shooting of Kevin Gaines I guess before I get to the callers the number is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND 
press star six one if you would like to participate this is one I guess it depends on how much you know how much do you know about Johnny Cochran how much do you know about the OJ Simpson case how much do you know about the Rodney King case how much do you know about the Rampart scandal all of that how much do you know about Los Angeles in the 1990s how much do you know about Frank Liga probably have to include the audio of that as we go but I'll just get it on the record for now so all of this happened in 1997 fast forward almost 20 years fast forward about 17 years 16 years and the era when now everybody has a phone that works really well and so they can get audio video all of that if you fast forward about 16 years Mr. Liga is recorded bragging about killing Mr. Gaines and apparently bragging saying that yes that was a great start I'd love to kill even more talking about Negras that is what got Mr. Liga dismissed from the LAPD not shooting and killing Kevin Gaines but 16 years later being recorded bragging about killing Kevin Gaines and saying that he wished he could kill more people apparently black people so that's I think an important tidbit now I don't know uh, we might have an edited version of this book where they include that I doubt it because that happened so late down the road but I do think that is kind of important like that would drastically change how I look at all this because we don't have two sides of the story Mr. Gaines didn't get, get to give his side of what happened with this incident which resulted in his death all we got is Frank Liga's uh, vindicated uh, story and then him bragging about what he did later on stand by your work I guess that's what it is anyway uh, we'll get to the folks who dialed in and wrote in for the first session here. Let's see. Folks with a hand up, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, getting into the prologue, um, should be uh, interesting uh, just, you know, reading the scene or, you know, reading the situation that's going on uh, with Gaines and Liga and uh, having that understanding that white people are dangerous. You don't know what you're dealing with, so you better just, you know, if, uh, you know, getting aggressive with a white person, uh, I think you've said this before and I agree with you, unless you're coming out to kill somebody or die, uh, then otherwise I would suggest not being aggressive towards white people. Uh, chapter one, uh, when you're talking about pools, uh, talking about pools, uh, 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 time in the academy and also to the, uh, talking about the lowering the LAPD standards, uh, for black, uh, officers, Kind of reminds, reminds me of the public school system, uh, just passing along black people who can't read or not being taught to read and just being passed along the school system, uh, making them unprepared uh, for uh, for you know for the racist world that they're going to be in. So, kind of same thing with the LAPD, uh, kind of uh, making their officers kind of unprepared for what what they're going to be dealing with. Um, 
he talked about the corruption, uh, going back on the history of the corruption of the L.A. TV, and especially at its worst time in the 30s and 40s. Um, that actually was portrayed in a film, and there was also a novel uh, called L.A. Confidential. So I, I thought it was an interesting film as well when I had first saw it, and actually deals with some um, with with a little bit of racism as well in that movie. Um, Homer Homer Bloom, um, they tried to uh, racially showcase him uh, at his retirement, but he kind of <laughs> turned the tables on them, uh, saying that uh, they were hiring officers since the 19th century, but didn't promote. <laughs> Anybody the captain until the I think it was like sixty nine or sixty eight something like that. Um, Willie Wilson, I mean I mean not Willie Wilson, Willie Williams, um, basically brought in uh, brought back as the L.A. police chief to basically kind of uh, fight off uh, uh, Parks, uh, who was the more popular uh, black candidate to be. Um, the uh, L.A. police chief, uh, you know, white people, you know, they want to bring uh, bring another black person in to kind of, uh, and I believe during the time the mayor of uh, Los Angeles was a white man uh, during this time, but, you know, you can't have a white person fighting a black person, so you just got to cover up the racism with, you know, using another black person, Bully uh, Williams, uh, BGQ, uh, so... And uh, Poole describing Mark Furman as an arrogant uh, uh, shooting, uh, arrogant fool shooting off his mouth uh, does not really express what he really is, which is a race soldier. Um, maybe Poole might be practicing some racism by not calling him a race soldier or a racist. Um, the Gaines incident was uh, – uh, what Poole was talking about with uh, Gaines uh, in this in this situation, I, I kind of find it interesting how he talks about how this incident has divided the black officers against the white officers. And what's so funny is, you know, during the beginning of this chapter, the author is going through the history of racism in this department. So – these this this division between black officers and white officers was long before what Gaines has been going you know uh, has done or did. So um, I don't find it uh, I don't find any evidence that this one incident that Gaines is doing or these incidents that one this one officer was doing uh, split the department racially. The the department was already split racially before. Uh, the the before uh, game, so uh, I didn't understand that. And what I also drew drew about this is, you know, it's it's interesting. So let's just say Gaines did, you know, do all these things that the uh, uh, pool and the reporter is talking about. And I was thinking about uh, police shootings uh, of uh, unarmed black men, the George Floyd, Eric Garner, or not a shooting but a killing. Uh, Tamir Rice and the various others that have, you know, come across our news cycle in the last, you know, 10, 10, 15 years. And it's so interesting how they do drug tests on the victims. And, you know, because George Floyd had some sort of substance in his body, 
but they never do drug tests on the police officers who shot these victims. And the first thing I thought about was, was gangs intoxicated, you know, during all of this time. So, uh, but yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing that I've always found uh, with, you know, with these unarmed, uh, with these uh, unarmed uh, black men police killings that they always drug test the victims, but they never drug test the police officers who was involved in these. So, uh, but that's all I had on my life. Very important point from Henry in Chicago. Sobriety would be best. Sobriety would be best, but very important point. Uh, And they just had a pretty uh, big write-up in a lot of the major reports uh, talking about that exact point. And in fact, I can give credit. Dr. Niana Rasayan, he said that eons ago on this program, talking about the absurdity, uh, how they will go out and Tamir Rice will be shot and killed and they'll come and say, oh, wait a minute, we did a drug test and it turns out he had uh, a half a teaspoon of cocaine in his system. So he probably was deserving of being shot down. But uh, the rest of these white race soldiers, or sometimes it'll be with a badge or no, uh, particularly with a badge, no drug test at all. Uh, In fact, I can give you the report right here because I think I gave a hat tip to Bang. Yes, I did, Dr. Niana Rasayan. So this is And with the L.A. Times, no less, I'll just read it as it states, the LAPD's lack of an explicit policy, one that not only punishes armed off-duty officers like both participants here, Gaines and Liga, who get intoxicated and into trouble, but precludes them from carrying their weapons while intoxicated in the first place, puts it at odds with other agencies. This is exclusively the LA Times and this just came out within the last seven days I think last four days or so I already posted it so you can it's on my Twitter until justice at until justice but that just came out uh, this week and the racial showcasing very important remembering whom is to blame and the divisions exactly it's been if you want to call it that it's been divisions forever Uh, other folks with a hand up proceed uh, Gus, Gus, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, Gus. Uh, I'd like to say one thing is that uh, I was there. I uh, I was a good friend of I was a good friend of Kevin Gaines, and everything that they said in that book is a lie. Gaines was a really, really good guy. He 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 was a very uh, good officer, and uh, a lot of the stuff they're saying is is untrue. And what I had lunch, I, I had lunch with Gaines a week before all this stuff transpired. And Kevin uh, had told me that they were after him. And he told me that our captain at the time was uh, a black a black captain, victim of white supremacy too. And he was the one that had... Uh, that had internal affairs uh, uh, secretly following Kevin. They had him because he told me, because I worked with him, uh, it really upset me what they did to him, still up to this day. And we worked that day, and we had lunch together a week before he died. 
and he told me, he said, they're following me, man. He said, I said, who's following you? He said, IA is following me. And I said, uh, what happened? He said, he, he told me that the other victim of white supremacy, who was who was a captain, had all all all, all them uh, race soldiers tailing him. He said that to every time I go places, I see them following me. I see undercover following me. So uh, I told him, I said, be careful. I don't want nothing to happen to you, bro. So, uh, but they were always after him. They were always messing with him. And, uh, you know, and then in another twist of fate, I was, uh, I was a probation, I was a, a, a rookie officer. And the same guy that murdered Kevin was my training officer. And he was always going into, uh, into the, uh, into, in, into black neighborhoods and harassing people. And he will always chase him and barge into their doors without no warrant, Gus. Just chase these people and make up stuff. And then he will tell me, uh, uh, go, go get a cup of coffee while I write the report. But he will never put my name on these reports. He will always say, oh, go, go, go get a coffee, cup of coffee and go and, and, uh, and uh, while I finish up the reports. But he was always heavy handed. Uh, pulling people over without no probable cause, hitting people and doing all that stuff. And, you know, another one of my classmates, another one of my classmates, uh, he, he observed the same thing too. But when uh, you, you're a rookie, you know, uh, the, 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 the place that we did our, uh, our, our probation, our, our probation, was 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 ripe with race soldiers, and they were always watching us. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, but uh, what they did with uh, to Kevin and besmirching his character is is really wrong because he he will never pull out his gun or challenge people. I know that. I worked with that guy for for three months, and I know he's not that kind of guy. So, I will uh, email you some other stuff. Uh, I have your email. I'll email you some other stuff and to show you how, how dirty that department is. That's all I have for now, Gus. Wow. Much obliged, sir. Uh, fascinating. Uh, or I don't even, that's not even the correct word uh, because, or I guess I'll ask, this is not like we got somebody who uh, just saw that, oh, wow, we're, we're the cows is going to be reading Labyrinth uh, and discussing the death of someone the murder of someone that i happen to know so i'll call in to you know give my personal experience like you've been listening to the cows for how long sir uh for like three years now and 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 uh i love the show man because it, it has saved me a lot you know what i'm saying but uh at the time uh my other classmate uh we did our rookie year at the same division uh that 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 liger used to work at and they were uh, always telling me to uh, to lie on him. They were always uh, telling me uh, to try to, uh, you know, uh, tell me uh, to uh, to lie on him or to try to get him in, in trouble. There was another uh, victim, another victim like me too. Uh, he was on on the uh, 
on the cusp by getting fired. And I told him, I said, hey, man, they're getting ready to fire you because he was, you know, he was a little bit slow. He didn't know how to work the uh, the computer, you know, the, 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 the computer in, in the police car. And he, you know, he didn't, uh, his officer safety skills were kind of like, you know, minimal. So I told him, I said, hey, man, come up to my house on the weekend and we'll go through this together. Because, you know, I was a little bit, I didn't know everything, but I know enough, you know what I'm saying? So I used to tutor him and we used to tutor each other. And that's how he got past his probation because I went on my way to help this other victim because I already see what they were trying to do to him. And they were out, they were on him too. And, uh, I mean, they, they, uh, I, I don't know if you hear about this other sergeant that usually come, come on TV. Her name is, uh, uh, Cheryl uh, Dorsey, Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey. She's always, I think she's the uh, uh, analyst for CNN. But they gave her hell too. They 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 uh, they used to call her uh, the nickname. I heard them, and I didn't know it was that they were calling her. But they were used. They used to call her uh, the 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 ghetto hoe, and they also used to call her. Uh, uh, Felicia, that's what they used. To, that's what the night, the night watch officers they used to all call her. Used to call her, get the hole or 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 Felicia or they also used to call her another term. They used to call her Brillo Pad. Yeah, so I, th- that's how I put two and two together. That I know that well. That's what they used to call her. But I, like I say, I am here to defend my friend because all those stuff they said about him was a lie. And I will email you the number of a one of my fellow officers, and that, uh, who uh, was good friends with him too, and and uh, he could he could uh, he could buttress what I just told you guys, you know. But it was pretty bad, man. But they 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 did that man wrong. And the sad part about all this is that another victim, a white supremacy, who was his captain, indirectly causes that. Much obliged for uh, reporting. Feel free to uh, drop me an email because we'll be reading the book for a while so we can share uh, info as we go. Uh, I just wanted to include because you said uh, that uh, Mr. Liga, suspected race soldier, uh, that this is the guy who's training you when you're working during through your probation period. Uh, and I'm just reading from the report. You all can check this out from Los Angeles CBS Local. This is from 2014, as I said. Later, he was relieved of duties for bragging about killing black people, not for killing a black person. So I'm just giving you the context for all of this. It says, uh, ah, here we go. So he was asked in the recording, do you regret shooting him? I says, no, I regret that he was alone in the truck at the time. I could have killed a whole truckload of them and would have been happily doing it doing so end quote the voices heard saying it is believed that the voice may be that of Liger referring to the incident in 1997 in which Liger reportedly killed LAPD officer Kevin Gaines the department ruled the shooting to have been performed in self-defense the department later settled with the Gaines family for $250,000 LAPD says the department has been investigating the recording for months the man who is believed to have been released, excuse me, the man who is believed to have released the tape reportedly did so because he was frustrated that Liga had not been disciplined. 
The recording was reportedly made in November while Liga was teaching at the academy. Uh, let's see. In the meantime, Liga's position in teaching has reportedly been put on hold, LAPD Chief Charlie Beck said. Uh, you all can read this for yourselves. LAPD detective allegedly discusses shooting a fellow officer on audio tape. Uh, this is 2014. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if we have missed you, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Bay Area mom? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. Greetings to you and the people on the line. Um, so as I was listening to the book, it it, it made me think um, uh, back to, um, especially with the, uh, the uh, just the neighborhoods like Watts was um, always, well, from when I was younger, it was always um, a bit extra. Um, it, I guess it was, I was only a little kid, so it was always exciting to go because I didn't have a thug life home. So, you know, those weekends and fight nights and stuff was great because you go watch or South Central. Yay. So, yay for me. So, anyway, um, with the police, um, especially, particularly like the Laga, that was the Laga, the Laga, uh, the white cop. As I was listening to it, it did sound fishy. The whole, the, especially the way that it was work, the way they were wording it, it just sounds so set up, like so much of, like a setup. And um, just the whole work, everything, the, the way all oh, these black cops, I they had to identify myself with like a black cop. <laughs> they just now got a chance to even uh, go do the uh, kind of uh, work that they do because they were just saying they were basically, you know, traffic cops because they couldn't really do anything until after, what was it, World War II or something, whatever the guy said. So just to be able to do whatever they do, and then you still have to identify yourself, and it's just a trip what black cops go through. And then the way they, everybody's story was against them. Like he was just, I'm sure he was. He might have had a little edge to him. I don't know. What is it? Sixty yeah. Shouldn't I? Yeah. So he might have had a little edge to him, probably, but a little square too, especially to be a cop to pick that kind of occupation. But I don't see him just, you know, the way they were acting as if every time he was um uh in his uh gang banging car. So um, he would, you know, how how reckless he would be driving and therefore, I'm not saying he wasn't, but it just seems like that's just extra. This, the whole thing so far that was read just seems so made up and just so, oh, poor Liga or, or Liga, poor officer. He just, oh, no, it was, no, he didn't. It just made it seem like, and oh, this black cop was just so terrible and all this stuff he was doing and how they were just covering up stuff for them, and it, it's just interesting. And um, those those LAT, I don't know a lot about any cops, even the cops where I live. I don't know anything about these people, but I know a lot about LAPD. 
and they're crooked cops. And they and as I listen to this as if they're just, oh, my God, I can't believe they was. Now I'm labeled as a racist. You guys are racist. And you cover up all. They cover. They're so cold. They'll cover everything. They'll cover all their corners. They'll make sure attorneys don't take cases. They they'll cover everything up. Um. I'll um. Thank you for taking my call. I'll mute my line. I forget this is the book club. Much obliged to Bay Area mom. Little nostalgia remembering trips to Watts as a young person. Then, yes, the unjust networking is uh, robust uh, within many uh, professions and certainly, you know, law enforcement or criminal law enforcement. Uh, certainly, who we're going to prosecute, who we're not going to prosecute. Some of that came out in Ferguson. They were, uh, remember that when they were, they said, uh, I think her name was Mary Ann Tweedy. Uh, she worked at the courthouse in Ferguson and they could contact her oh hook it up for my traffic ticket you know I was speeding again this week hook it up for me you know she could do that sort of that same thing unjust networking uh, other folks who we have not heard from if you have commentary proceed yes sir can I be heard retired firefighter in Florida greetings to Gus greetings uh, to everyone uh, at first I thought I was uh listening to the real-life story of the enforcement official that, De- that Denzel Washington played. <laughs> you know, uh, I appreciate the, 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 uh, the caller, the Kyle's caller who uh, called in who knew the, uh, the uh, non-white enforcement official personally. Uh, that that, that gives, gives us a lot of help on reading this, this book. Uh, uh, it sounds like the book is made for the reading of white people. <laughs> it sounds like it from the standpoint of how the uh, the first session was uh, was uh, read. Uh, yeah, uh, the history aspect, uh, the the uh, uh, the uh, not platform, but the the uh, the now the, the narrative of the history that uh he was describing was fit for white people uh as far as the history how he was illustrating the history of los angeles police department uh giving uh some kind of credence to uh some of the famous race soldiers who were uh the uh the chief of uh lapd uh and uh kind of like uh not really uh going in detail of racism white supremacy as a reasoning on why the non-white black employees uh were being mistreated in its history <laughs> by restricting them uh to what uh law enforcement uh uh uh, statuses that they can actually operate, uh, and not and and this was not just and most I figure most people on the line would know this. This was not just restricted with LAPD. This was this was uh, something that went on with police departments in this part of the world. Period. And some of them were the same things 
you couldn't arrest you couldn't you couldn't uh arrest white people you 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 could only detain them you know things of that nature and so on and so forth uh that he was just like passing over pussyfooting around uh with the uh with the truth of the matter that it was a uh, a means to practice racism white supremacy and then the nerve to talk about uh lowering the standards <laughs> you know i mean it, it it's just the rhetoric of white supremacy, talking about lowering the standards. Uh, uh, and basically what it was was the shenanigans that still today that takes place on a lot of, not just the, not just law enforcement uh, as far as jobs are concerned. Uh, uh, on the job that I had, uh, they, they had this, this beam that, that we had to, to walk on uh, like they had anything to do with being a firefighter. Uh, 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 because somehow they found out that this was a means to eliminate black people, you know. So, I mean, the same thing was taking place with law enforcement, you know, uh, uh, lowering the, it just, like I said, the, 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 the term lowering the, the standards, that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, so I, I really appreciate the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the participant who, uh, knows, uh, this, uh, deceased uh friend uh personally because uh, he r really helps with will really help with the, the book itself and an understanding of the truth and uh that's all i have to say thank you Damn. said uh you thought it was alonzo harris from training day like my goodness <laughs> yikes that's the way they made it seem <laughs> You know, I mean, wow. Wowzers. Well, uh, we'll keep that in mind as we go. What a comparison. My goodness. Uh, Kevin Gaines uh, for Alonzo Harris in Training Day. And then the certainly the, the standards uh, in terms of enforcement, that's something uh we'll we'll come back to in in a moment uh i just want to want to include written commentary from an investor as well as we kind of move through all of this let's see the first one let's see part one race cars this is the second time around for race card all the way back to Orenthal James Simpson beginning of the year chapter one a year after Poole graduated through a series of lawsuits forced the academy to lower its standards to admit more of the black candidates if you were lousy or wouldn't try they pat you on the back remedial classes you can take get you some counseling lowering standards on written tests I wonder if all these civil service tests are just examples of unjust networking for example, racist suspects accumulate answers from previous tests. White people bragged about this practice uh, at my alma mater. Uh, they would say that they're, especially the white people, males and females who belonged to fraternities, sororities, uh, they would say that the upperclassmen or older members that they would just stockpile uh, previous tests and exams and all of that so you could just go and look and be extraordinarily well prepared for any tests continuing he says how else do you explain high school dropout like mark Furman becoming a policeman that was the other thing that i thought like oh we i'm so 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 glad that we're doing this after we have read 
and spent some extensive time researching Arunthal James Simpson in that trial, are you going to tell me a white person is going to look me in my face and tell me, oh, we got to lower standards and have unqualified negras come through, remedial class officers, uh, Mark High School dropout Furman. We can get to the recording later. Right now we're talking about Mark High School dropout, not one, not two, three different community colleges, Furman. Mark Furman, who by his own testimony from the late F. Lee Bailey, who just died a week ago, asked on the witness stand, what are your qualifications? And he says, I have about or a little less than two years worth of community college. He didn't even finish. And you're going to tell me that we are lowering standards. Woo, come on. Number two, I didn't want to draw my gun, so I take out my SAP, SAP, a lead-filled leather strap used to beat suspects, a.k.a. the Negra Knocker. Can I get the sound effect in? We should really move forward. We should move forward. Do I have it? Oh, it's at the end. I can't get it quick, but Norm Stamper, who was a police officer in SoCal, the Negra Knocker. Number three, back in those days, the LAPD talked about itself as a family. Poole recalled we greeted each other with hugs. Black officers invariably sat in a section of the room separate from the white and Hispanic officers. So the black officers are expected to hug and mingle with a bunch of Mark Furmans who think the non-white victims are a bunch of subhuman morons? Question. <laughs> Uh, and incidentally, no hugging on the job. Maybe they were being codified. Forget all this hugging and feeling. The Rona is, you know, right around the corner. Forget all the unnecessary fraternizing. Number four, racial sensitivity was not a theme that resonated particularly well with Chief Parker. I'd like a definition of racial sensitivity. Amen. Number, number five. In 1960, Bradley, only the third black lieutenant in the department's history, found three white officers who were willing to share a single patrol car with lost my plate, with black partners in separated shifts. When word leaked out, however, that, that might be unjust networking too. When word leaked out, however, the white officers began to absorb a, a barrage of abuse from their cohorts. To paraphrase Gus, uh-oh, White people will tell other white people when they are violating the code. Absolutely. Uh, I always think of police officer Mayor Bradley in connection with the Bradley effect in elections. They do mention uh, him. Also, I always think it's so incorrect that they do. The Bradley effect is basically uh, like if it's going to be a black person running for office uh, and you might have a significant number of white people if they do not want to appear racist if they are polled publicly they will say they're going to vote for the black person and then they get in the booth and do not vote for the black person uh, it's called the Bradley effect because I think he was running for governor and it looked like he was going to win and then he did not and so they said I said they should have named it after a white person as opposed to the victim next number seven uh, it did not help that Willie Williams became virtually by every account the worst LAPD chief in the modern era I remember Willie Williams from the time I lived in Philadelphia. My recollection is that he was highly regarded by both black and white citizens in Philadelphia, the city of Frank Rizzo, 
move and of course so-called brotherly love I questioned at the time his taking the job in LA coming relatively soon after Rodney King the infamous then we get on to next chapter so we'll save that for later um my thoughts let me get to my notes let's see from the prologue we, this book reminds me of uh, Jeffrey Tubin in many ways so far. They made a just like Jeffrey Tubin's work. They didn't make a big feature or I guess maybe and I have to even put a dash there we were told there was supposed to be a movie coming out about Geronimo Pratt that movie is not about Geronimo Pratt. That movie is about a different black person. I think it might even be Larry Settles uh, that that movie is about uh, where Johnny Cochran worked for him and all that, but it, it's not like that's the Geronimo Pratt film. That's not what that is. That's supposed to be coming out at some point. They made the whole FX miniseries about Jeffrey Tubin's book. They made City of Lies about this book. Johnny Depp, Forrest Whitaker, big names, all of that directly focused. They didn't do that with Jackal. There's no book directly focused on Jack Olson's Last Man Standing. Not that I think it's that great of a uh, project, but I mean to really make sure that people know about this and think about this and research and read and all the rest of it and to greatly influence how people think about these events. Just something to think about. Now this immediately, speaking of Jack Olson, I didn't say that was a great book at any point. I just thought it's informative. Uh, I remember the passage Jack Olson, he was talking about it was he was describing how Reverend McCloskey when he started doing his work working with prisoners he was going around to get information and he went to someone's house I think it was in crypt territories and so we were talking about or something related to that and he had on some clothing and he said he wrote that the woman's eyes got as big as pancakes and I said see all of that there's a long history uh, they would do that with like Amos and Andy and all of the white supremacist entertainment where they would have black people with their eyes would get uh, as big as watermelons and all this goofiness and then we get right in the prologue the black man became so hidden and he's talking about Kevin Gaines his eyes became so enraged that his eyeballs bulged let's see we got and right from the beginning we got the, the big niggers with the big eyeballs like, oh, oh oh my gosh uh let's see and again we do not have anybody else side of the story for this all we got is frank liga and describing uh, and as you guessed it an angry black male uh let's see even that's interesting that this chapter uh the part one is titled the race card even that is that I mean is communicating a lot like retired fighter fighter said who is this book intended for to start this book on these murders many of them in fact Kevin Gaines Christopher Wallace Tupac Shakur many many deaths uh, throughout this book black people black males specifically uh, in part one not black misandry or black death or anything like that the race card not racism, not white supremacy, not bias, not white privilege. The race card. Uh, let's see. Next. Now he says, this is chapter one. Liga felt certain he had done nothing wrong. I don't think he realized the fact that Gaines was black was going to be as much of a problem for him as it was. What problem? He didn't have a problem until 2013. He didn't get suspended. Like, what happened? They ruled it, uh, they, what did they say, a rightful shooting? No crime here, as usual. What problem? What are you talking about? 
you got a news a news conference. He is shot and killed a white person. I'm sure it would uh, it would have been a problem. Like man, you can't just go around killing white people. So what are you talking about? I would need that explained too, and give a definition for racial uh, sensitivity. Uh, let's see next. Gaines, who had been reprimanded repeatedly for attempting to pick up women while on duty. There are no footnotes in this. So some of this, I wonder, like, where is it like, do they have, is this in his personnel file that, you know, he, he was reckless eyeballing on the job or uh, like, where is this? Like, yeah, I would like the notes. I would like the notes uh, for his conduct in this regard. Be professional. We talk about that in workplace racism. Uh, let's see. Uh, when he talked about uh, Poole, Russell Poole, he's the white male who's doing the investigating, played by Johnny Depp uh, in the film City of Lies. Uh, he said he looked up to his father. He'd been in the Marine Corps during the Korean War alongside Neely Fuller Jr. I used to look up at his medals. White killers, uh, that's what that is. Uh, all of that is trained white killers and invariably going to places like Korea and Vietnam, Japan to bomb and kill non-white people. Chris Kyle, remember him? Read about that. Uh, let's see. The culture of the LAPD back then was quasi-military. Mark Furman was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, recalled Poole, who liked it that way, that quasi-military. That's how you end up, you know, we get to go out and attack in the jungle. Uh, let's see. I went into the academy at a pretty solid 185, uh, finished at 165. Uh, but I, you learned pretty fast that physical ability wasn't the point. Character was. They wanted to see whether you would drop out or keep trying would you quit if you got cramps while you were running or would you grind it out he said a lot of the women talking about white women a lot of the women in the class impressed me in that way in contrast to the niggers only about a year after Poole graduated though a series of lawsuits forced the academy to make failure all but obsolete after that if you were lousy or wouldn't try hard enough they'd pat you on the back and say it's okay we have remedial classes you can take Poole recall they'd get you counseling. They also started lowering the standards of written tests in order to encourage diversity and avoid controversy. Now, I don't know what that last part means, avoid controversy. Even the diversity part, what does that mean? So you can hire more females, more gay people, more elderly people, more disabled. Like, what are you even talking about? And again, when you say lowering standards, is that so that we can get people like Mark Furman in? High school dropout? Is that what you're talking about? Woo, man, get me off of the meritocracy and the system of white supremacy. And as I just said, all of this quasi-military and bringing in folks like Mark Furman with all this military experience and particularly military experience killing non-white people. And so then they want to come back and be back in the jungle. That's what they say. The most feared part of Southwest Division was the area called the jungle, a collection of apartment buildings along Martin Luther King Boulevard. That's where, again, the danger. Chris Rock had a segment talking about that too. The danger where MLK is. Oof. Stockpile the niggers there, and then we can go and have a blast. Shoot them up, arrest them, all kinds of things. Run experiments, all kinds of things. Uh, let's see. Even the section where they describe, they say back in the uh, old days, which is absurd, 
Uh, they say the LAPD talked about itself as a family. We greeted each other with hugs and all that as though everybody got along. And the way it's described, they say the, the only discordant note was sounded at roll calls where black officers invariably sat in a section of the room separate from the white and Hispanic officers who tended to intermingle, but nobody ever talked about it. Poole remembered. The only, so everything was fine except for the black. It's the only note so-called of discord was the niggers who sit together like the book, the why the black people sitting together, the audacity where he just said the black people were relegated to working from two to six in the morning so that you won't be seen. We'll try and hide you away. And then a few white officers want to work with you and we harass them to death until they back. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Woo. That and we haven't even got to the rest of it. Things like that. When I see it, when I am reminded, I either these should be reminders, passages like this, Oh, a suspected racist authored this book. I got to be alert and or just confirmation. Yes. Suspected. That's what I thought. Yes. Got to be alert while I'm reading next. Uh, let's see. The cesspool of white supremacy racism. He talks about the corruption of the LAPD long running uh, when white Vice officers earned their money by protecting prostitutes, pimps, pornographers uh, in Los Angeles. And then uh, the head of LAPD's intelligence division uh, tried to bomb an investigator just processing all that and then move as a terrorist organization. And then you have white people doing this sort of thing, white enforcement officers bombing other white people. That is the culture of white supremacy racism. Let's see. Uh, The black misandry, they say, then as now, Sullivan writes, black males committed a hugely disproportionate amount of crime in Los Angeles and across the country. Those no good Kevin Gaineses of the world. Again, what do we count as crime? Areas like L.A., across the country, across the world. Who do we think of as criminals? Kevin Gaines. Uh, let's see. Not people like Stuart Hanlon, also in California, who we just read about snorting crack cocaine and or cocaine, excuse me, and tranquilizers and all the rest of it. We don't think of him as a criminal drug smut uh, peddler and all the rest of it. Uh, let's see. Oh, I love it. They said uh, they were about to do. Mr. Broom is going to retire I've had a great career. Thank you all for all the accolades. And he gets up and says, oh, thank you. I would like to uh, take the next five minutes to talk about racism in the department. (laughs) And said, oh, my God, (laughs) we're going to have cake and do a little racial showcasing. And now he wants to talk about the history of mistreatment. Like, oh, my God, I'm disgusted. I'm about to lose my appetite here. Uh, Let's see the audience was shocked let's see he says uh they i guess did all of this appointing uh or so in the 1940s and 50s and then he says the backsliding began i'd like that explained too uh let's see Talking about the Mark Furman tapes are released. Racial tensions were inflamed, whatever that means. 
Uh, he says, so a lot of black officers said they thought Simpson was innocent. And that was just an outrage to the rest of us. Now, that's interesting because it was so obvious that he was guilty. So suddenly you got not only you not only had black officers angry at white officers, but also white officers angry at black officers. I don't know why. I don't think that's justification if a certain because I mean, some white people thought O.J. Simpson was innocent. Some white people now think O.J. Simpson is innocent. So that, in my view, is not rational. If a black officer says that they think O.J. Simpson is innocent, I do too, by the way, now, uh, why would I be upset? Why would that just, why can't that just be, oh, we disagree and moving on? No, I'm mad. Niggas running around here saying Juice didn't do it and you know he did. I'm mad. What sense does that make? Then they continued, that situation got a lot worse when the Mark Furman tapes came out and people heard this white detective saying nigger this and nigger that. Furman was just so arrogant and was just was just now that's talk about minimizing was just an arrogant fool shouting off his mouth to impress a woman but he did so much damage now pause right there we spent all that time reading oj simpson that's not just mark Furman. mark Furman bragged about beating non-white people bloody into a pulp that's not just oh i just did and there's evidence that oh yeah this happened and this is the person non-white people stepping forward i was one of those beaten to a pulp and blah 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 all of that like what are you talking about like no it was quite a bit more than him just bragging to a woman and his involvement in the OJ. anyway i can't even go a white person talking to me really anybody but especially someone classified as white talking to me in this way about oj simpson that lets me a whole lot like wow i gotta be really alert uh because i suspect you're deliberately practicing racism and trying to be deceptive uh let's see and, and then he continues he says did so much damage uh so all the firmen did so much damage so did the subsequent spectacle of black citizens in the streets of los angeles cheering the acquittal of a man who had gotten away with murder okay so you're you're being definitive that's all randall sullivan you are taking a position you're calling oj simpson a murderer it's not the jury of their peers came to a decision jury that was not all black people he did it you know he did it and it's oh niggers out in the street black people being out in the street celebrating being happy about a court decision is on par with mark Furman bragging about the same thing Frank Lanka did killing black people would love to kill black people told numerous white people killing black people ah great ah killing black people framing them for crimes they didn't do non-white people bragging about the times that he did do it that's on par with black people being outside and cheering a court decision comparison I talk about that all the time metaphors and people start the analogies and all that and making those comparisons got to be very alert about that thing that sort of thing uh, let's see so and then they go from that so we had this atmosphere where any case involving racial issues was overshadowed by watch that overshadowed by politicians pool explained everybody on the department was afraid to make a mistake or even to do the right thing if it exposed them to criticism white people do not want to be labeled as racist but I've seen no evidence that something coming up dealing with racism means that white people are not going to do what they want to do they might be a little more careful in their wording uh, and more attentive to how they go about doing it but if it's something they want to do they're going to do it period Uh, let's see oh my god now this 
the so-called good white person. They say now Poole, uh, as a patrol officer in Southwest Division, Poole had been widely admired for insisting that if the LAPD was going to bust black gangbangers for spraying freeway underpasses with graffiti, then it had to do the same when it caught the fraternity boys from USC painting city streets with their insignia. Poole became a minor celebrity within the department when he arrested the white starting quarterback of USC's football team. That sort of thing, in my opinion, is not admirable in a system of white supremacy. Be just. You're an enforcement officer? Absolutely. If we're going out here to bust so-called gangbangers for putting up their graffiti, then I don't even know what a gangbanger is. Sometimes it's just you being a black person with a spray paint can is enough for you to be a gangbanger. Hey, they thought uh, Johnny Cochran was a gangbanger and he was in a luxury vehicle with a uh, suit on. So I don't know. Gangbanger, sometimes that just means nigger. They're synonyms sometimes. Anyway, uh, that's nothing to be admired as a white person. You're still a suspected race soldier. Mad about the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, let's see. Liga. Skilled proficient with the firearm. He started his day with a 100% score with both 12 gauge shotgun and the same Beretta pistol that he used to kill Kevin Gaines, black male darn tootin' Gust. He says, when you go out of the house, if you did not leave with the intention of killing and or dying, approach with caution. You never know who just left the gun range itching to show off their proficiency. Uh, let's see. Anything else need to get in? There are reports that Liga also had been uh, accused of misconduct. Uh, I'll have to read those later. Also, I thought it was interesting that it said that Gaines was accused repeatedly of discourtesy and unnecessary force in his dealings with white, Hispanic, and Asian suspects. I said, wow, now that is interesting. So, did no black people file any reports that he was discourteous to them? Uh, Did he only use unnecessary force with non-black suspects? Are you allowed to use unnecessary force with only black people? If you try to use the same, if you treat people the way that you normally would niggers, are you immediately reported for unnecessary force and discourtesy? Like it just left me with a lot of questions. Like they were so, or Sullivan was so specific to say Asian, Hispanic, white people accused him of all of this. No black people. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Let's see. Last one. I'll get Cochran's incursion into the case uh, on behalf of Gaines family changed everything for the LAPD detectives in charge of the investigation. As soon as Cochran gets involved, the brass is too pool recall. They're all putting their heads together and fighting out how to control this thing. And then we had Farrakhan's people following the case. It was almost like the racial aspect of this thing was taking on a life of its own. Two days after the shooting, Captain Doan of the Pacific Division reported to Internal Affairs that he sensed a growing divisiveness among the officers along racial lines. Incidentally, I find it hmm, 
if a gang of black males alleging to be police officers was going around harassing people non-black people and trying to get them to alter their testimony I think the LA Times would be reporting in fact I think it would be difficult for that sort of thing to happen in a system of white supremacy racism if these are not even if they're black people but particularly if these are non-black people I don't know Lonzo Harris I don't know we'll get to the second audio segment Uh, the word racism is only in this book five times second audio segment coming up Randall Sullivan Labyrinth we haven't even gotten to the assassination of uh, Tupac Shakur and Notorious B.I.G. So much more to come. Context of white supremacy, audio segment two. Chapter two. Knowing what needed to be done was no guarantee that you would be permitted to do it, Russell Poole was learning, at least not for a detective assigned to the LAPD's robbery homicide division. Poole had joined RHD only four months earlier and considered it an honor to be part of the department's elite division. Even better, he was assigned to the unit still known as Major Crimes, but now officially titled Homicide Special, that handled all of Los Angeles's high-profile murder investigations. Well before he arrived at LAPD headquarters in Parker Center, however, Poole had been warned about robbery homicide's country club atmosphere. Only a detective who was sponsored could win an assignment to RHD, and the only detectives who got sponsors, Poole discovered, were golfers. It sounds ridiculous, but it's true, he said. Most of the senior detectives, and some of the brass, too, would be out on the golf course while on duty with their pagers and cell phones on if anyone needed to get in touch with them. Poole had spent most of the past eight years at South Bureau Homicide, a unit that covered just four of the LAPD's 18 divisions, but handled half of the department's murder investigations. South Bureau Homicide boasted a solve rate of nearly 70%, yet maintained a list of 1,500 unsolved gang murders between 1985 and 1998, which tells you how many gang killings there were in South Central during those years, Poole said. In 1993 alone, Poole had arrested 23 killers involved in 17 murders. Of the 75 suspects he had arrested for murder during his years as a homicide detective, only two were acquitted at trial, and in both cases the victims had been drug dealers. While few killings in south-central Los Angeles made headlines, Poole had received 22 commendations for his murder investigations and was proud of his reputation for success. South Bureau homicide detectives put in long hours and lived our cases, as Poole put it, but the atmosphere in robbery homicide was much different. Cases were given priority on the basis of media interest and political considerations. A lot of RHD detectives, especially among the more senior ones, seemed to feel they needed to be available only for major mobilizations and were free to float the rest of the time. Fred Miller told Poole that the tone had been set by his old partner, the most famous homicide detective in LAPD history, Jigsaw John St. John, who had investigated the Black Dahlia case, among others. Jigsaw John was a media legend, 
this great detective who had handled all these big cases back in the 40s and 50s and was still working as a homicide investigator at an age when most guys have long since retired, Poole said. But Fred told me that Jigsaw John had just coasted for the last 15 or 20 years he was on the department and that the brass let him. Fred said the two of them would work from 7 to 11 in the morning, then go out for a martini lunch that might last until 10 or 11 at night. They spent most of their time sitting in restaurants or bars with their pagers on if something big happened. When Poole first interviewed for the job at RHD, Miller had been his biggest backer, openly opposing the lieutenant who had preferred another candidate. Despite their differences in age and rank, the two got on well at first, but the more Poole heard about his senior partner, the more leery he became. People began telling me that whenever Fred identifies a suspect, he moves on to another case, Poole recalled. Other detectives told me Fred hasn't made a murder arrest in years. I took the position that I'd have to see for myself. What Poole saw almost immediately was that Miller regularly put his caseload second to his golf game. That approach to the job first had become a real problem for Poole on the morning of February 28, 1997. Fred and I, and another senior detective, went out for an early breakfast, Poole recalled, and afterward they started driving east. I didn't know where we were going until we arrived at this giant golf warehouse out in the city of industry, which is about 25 miles from Parker Center. The detectives were still shopping when all three pagers went off simultaneously. A pair of 20-something weightlifters wearing ski masks and encased from ankle to neck in body armor had just robbed the Bank of America branch on Laurel Canyon Boulevard in North Hollywood. Now they were using assault rifles modified to fire on full automatic to battle the LAPD officers who had surrounded the building. Fred and the other detective were shitting when we got the call, Poole recalled. We had to drive through heavy traffic to get back to Parker Center, where we dropped the other detective off. I knew that Fred never carried a homicide kit in the trunk of his car because he needed the space for his golf clubs, so I ran upstairs and grabbed as many supplies as I could, then brought them back down and threw them into the back seat. We took off to the scene, but it took forever, and by the time we got there, the two robbers had been shot dead. Poole volunteered to serve as evidence coordinator at what had become the largest crime scene in LAPD history and would work on site until the following morning. Fred let me know he didn't think that was too bright, Poole remembered, and I let him know I was not going to stand around and watch other guys work, so we already had a little tension between us by the time of the Gaines Liga investigation. Miller, who had more than 25 years on the job and was perpetually planning his retirement, was one of the RHD detectives most affected by the ordeal of the lead investigators on the O.J. Simpson case. After watching what Tom Lang and Phil Van Etter were put through on the witness stand and in the media, and the way they went into retirement under this giant cloud of controversy, Poole explained, a lot of the older RHD detectives, but Fred especially, made up their minds that they were not going to get drawn into something like that at the end of their careers. So as soon as Fred finds out that Johnny Cochran is involved in Gaines Liga, he's scared to death and doesn't want anything more to do with the investigation. After about the first week, you won't find my partner's signature on anything connected to the case, because he doesn't want to find himself in a courtroom being cross-examined by Cochran. So I'm pretty much going it alone. Poole was getting plenty of advice from his superiors in the department, but found their instructions more troubling than helpful. 
When I asked what was happening with Henderson, the brass told me to stay away and keep my mouth shut. When I asked if IA had identified the other officers who were with Henderson when he confronted the coffee company employee, they told me it was none of my business. Then my lieutenant tells me that I am not to make any mention of Sharitha Knight or Gaines's connection to death row records in my follow-up report because that document will become a public record and that this order is coming down all the way from the chief's office. Other detectives already had told me I had to leave that information out of my reports because we don't want people to know that one of our officers is involved with death row. I said, why not? It's the truth. What I got back was, do as you're told. And I did. I'm fairly new, and I don't want to rock the boat. I'm still getting acclimated to working downtown, but I'm thinking, is this the way it works in RHD? No wonder they got embarrassed in the OJ trial. There's a bad taste in my mouth, but I'm sure the truth will come out eventually. Poole's problem was that his pursuit of the truth forced him to investigate the links between Kevin Gaines and death row records. The existence of such links was suggested by the clues Poole had started with, those gathered from Gaines's vehicle, from his locker at Pacific Division, and from his corpse at the hospital, where he was pronounced dead. The evidence collected from the Green Montero established mainly how intertwined Gaines's life was with Sharitha Knight's. Among the items inventoried were a love note Gaines had written to his girlfriend, an invitation to the fourth birthday party of Shogun Sharitha Knight's daughter, Kayla, and in addition to three of Gaines's LAPD pay stubs, a stub for another check bearing this note, Sharitha from Marion Knight, monthly allowance, $10,000. Inside Gaines's locker, investigators found bedding stubs from Las Vegas, various phone numbers of unknown females, a business card for a security company embossed with the name of Officer Bruce Stallworth, a confusing collection of real estate documents, plus 8 by 10 glossies of Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur that were taped to the locker's back wall. Gaines seemed to have made idols of the slain rapper and the boss at Death Row Records, yet Sharitha Knight insisted that she knew of only a single tense encounter between Kevin and Suge. She and Kevin and several of her relatives were in Las Vegas for a concert that had just ended when they stepped outside and were met by Suge and a man she did not recognize, Sharitha said. Suge and his companion pushed their way into the van the group was traveling in and asked for a ride to their hotel, according to Sharitha. Kevin, who was driving, put his gun in his lap and asked, Where you guys want to go? I'll tell you, just keep driving, Suge replied, then began whispering into her ear. Threatening me, basically, Sharitha recalled. Eventually, she realized Shug was directing them to this deserted spot, Sharitha said, and became alarmed. That man, Gaines, is a police officer, she told her husband, and I don't think we're going to play games with you. She told Kevin to turn the van around, Sharitha said, and a few minutes later, they dropped Shug off at his hotel. From there, Kevin drove straight to the airport and got on a plane to Los Angeles. According to Captain Doan of Pacific Division, the first words Gaines's wife Georgia spoke when informed of her husband's death were, Suge Knight's people killed him. If Kevin Gaines wanted to avoid Suge Knight and his people, however, he had gone about it in a strange way. At the time of his death, Gaines's wallet contained a ten-day-old receipt from Monty's Steakhouse in Westwood, a well-known hangout for death row executives. A number of LAPD officers acknowledged that Gaines had tried to recruit them to work security at death row parties. Frank Liga reported that an informant had told him Gaines was an active member of the Bloods gang. 
Suge Knight had long been associated with Compton's Pyru Bloods. There was, as well, the question of how Gaines had managed to support an exorbitant lifestyle on his police officer's salary. That receipt from Monty's showed Gaines had paid $952 for a single lunch. Also in Gaines's wallet were ten credit cards, each one carrying high limits that no cop can afford, Poole recalled. Other patrol officers from Pacific Division told Poole that Gaines regularly showed up for work wearing Versace shirts costing $1,000 apiece. His fleet of cars included a BMW, a Ford Explorer, and a Mercedes 420 SEL sporting vanity plates that taunted the LAPD's Internal Affairs Division. It's OKIA. Derwin Henderson maintained that Gaines covered some of his costs with thousands of dollars won at the blackjack tables in Las Vegas. Henderson, who drove a Mercedes of his own, claimed that he made $20,000 a year betting on horse races at Hollywood Park. Other LAPD officers, however, said Gaines had bragged about earning $250 an hour working security for death row records. Among Gaines's other boasts, according to the officers who worked with him, was that he owned so much real estate he no longer needed to work for the LAPD. His locker had been filled with blank rental and lease agreements from a company called Scott Properties, yet his wife said she knew nothing about any of that and insisted her husband had owned just the house where she and the children lived in Gardena, plus one other modest property. Internal affairs investigators asked for a warrant to search for other real estate owned by Gaines, but their request was denied. Poole told his supervisors in robbery homicide that he needed a search warrant to check Gaines's financial records for the past ten years, but he, too, was refused. All the brass would tell me, Poole recalled, was, Gaines is dead, leave it alone. Within the rank and file of the LAPD, stories had been circulating for several years that there was a growing cadre of black officers whose involvement with death row records superseded their loyalty to the department. A good deal of this gossip was generated by an incident that had taken place just after midnight on March 14, 1995, at the El Rey Theater in L.A.'s Wilshire District. The occasion was a Soul Train Record Awards after-party. Three uniformed LAPD officers had been called to the El Rey when a fight broke out earlier in the evening. The officers were standing on the sidewalk under a sign that read, Death Row Private Party, Guest List Only when they heard a commotion inside the theater. One of the three turned just in time to see a young man named Kelly Jamerson get his head split open by a beer bottle, then watched as a crowd of more than a dozen black males surrounded the bleeding Jamerson and began kicking and hitting the victim on all areas of his body. By the time the LAPD officers reached Jamerson, the young man was dying of injuries that included a brain hemorrhage. Then, as the report filed by Wilshire detectives put it, Approximately 400 people exited the theater as officers attempted to protect the victim. Many were intoxicated and failed to comply with instructions to remain where they were. By the time the officers at the scene got around to asking questions, the only available witness was a bartender who said he had seen Jamerson arguing with four black males. The bartender believed that one of the suspects was a member of Death Row Records Company, according to the Wilshire Detectives report whom he described as a black male, 6 foot 4, 390 pounds, with short hair, cut into an angle. He observed the suspect remove a Miller beer bottle from the counter and strike the victim on the head. 
It was almost daybreak when LAPD investigators arrived at the El Rey to find a large bloodstain on the paisley carpet in the lobby and, under an arch of red, white, and silver balloons, a dance floor littered with torn Death Row Records posters, broken glass, and shards of china plates. Kelly Jamerson was pronounced dead shortly after noon when the case officially became a murder investigation. The victim was so badly beaten, covered with lacerations, abrasions, swelling, and bruising to the head, torso, and extremities, the deputy medical examiner who performed the autopsy reported, that it was virtually impossible to pinpoint any single injury as the cause of death. Much of the evidence detectives collected came from anonymous callers who had been at the El Rey party when the beating took place. Combined with the statements of the bartender, the club manager, the ticket taker, the theater's security guard, and the two guests at the party who were willing to be identified as witnesses, these reports provided a remarkably consistent picture of what had taken place. The party had been staged as a classy affair, detectives kept hearing from the people who had been there except for the white strippers who worked the stage area wearing only glitter and g-strings nearly everyone present was black and the guests ranged from executives to homeboys the centerpiece of the event was a giant ice sculpture of the death row records logo and the record company's ceo had been in an especially exhilarated mood suge knight was roving through the hall with a wild excited look in his eyes as one guest described it grabbing the strippers by the hips and grinding against them at the same time he carried on conversations with his associates the trouble began when the party's guest of honor rapper snoop dogg at the time facing first-degree murder charges took the stage to perform his latest single murder was the case Suge Knight and nearly every one of his associates at death row were affiliated with the blood gangs from Compton, but Snoop Dogg came from Long Beach and claimed Crips membership. In the middle of his number, Snoop had been inspired to throw Crips gang signs to several members of the gang's rolling 60s set and to give the crowd a flash of the Crips color, blue. Though the Crips in the audience were badly outnumbered, several emboldened gang members responded to Snoop by throwing gang signs back at him, thereby infuriating the Bloods. Almost immediately, death row rapper DJ Quick, David Blake, began to throw blood signs at one of the Crips. DJ Quick had been attacked two years earlier by Rolling Sixties members who broke his jaw, according to the Compton police, and publicly sought revenge. Almost immediately, according to the El Rey security guard, one of DJ Quick's bodyguards attacked the Crip who was jawing with his boss. DJ Quick himself then picked up a chair and used it to knock the Crip to the ground, where his bodyguards pummeled the man. DJ Quick, dressed in the same black and red Pendleton shirt the death row bodyguards wore, kicked the man while he was down, then broke away from the melee to step onto the El Rey's stage, where he spoke briefly to Suge Knight, who promptly left the theater. DJ Quick almost immediately initiated a second attack, this one on Kelly Jamerson, witnesses said. Jamerson, also a member of the Rolling Sixties Crips, was chased into the El Rey's lobby where a crowd of 12 to 15 bloods surrounded him. One of them knocked him to the ground by hitting him in the head with a beer bottle, and the rest of the group closed in. We're going to kill this motherfucker, the El Rey's security guard heard one of the men say, as he joined the others in kicking and stomping Jamerson for at least ten minutes, by which time the man on the ground was covered with blood and clearly unconscious. 
The El Rey's ticket taker told police that immediately after the fight, he was approached by a man who handed over three claim tickets and said, we need these cars brought up right away. We're with DJ Quick and he's the reason this fight started. We need the cars brought around back. At least five witnesses, including three who were willing to give their names, said they had seen DJ Quick kicking Jamerson while he lay on the ground. Nearly all of the others who were identified in the attack on Jamerson, however, were not DJ Quick's bodyguards, but members of Suge Knight's personal security detail. These included Alton Buntree McDonald, Crawford High C. Wilkerson, Jay Hassan Jamal, Jake the Violator Robles, and Ronald Ram Lamb. Easily the most knowledgeable and compelling of the witnesses police interviewed was a young man who spoke to them several times by telephone but refused to give his name. The Crips had believed it was safe to attend a death row party, this witness said, because Snoop Dogg was one of their own. DJ Quick was the first to physically attack Kelly Jamerson, according to the witness, and struck him with both a chair and a champagne bottle before joining the others in stomping Jamerson after he fell to the ground. The witness confirmed the participation of Jake, Buntree, and High C in the attack, then added two other names, Bernard Zeke Thomas and Donnell Antoine Donzel Smith both associates of DJ Quick. He himself was a close friend of DJ Quick's, this witness said, and actually grabbed the rapper by one shoulder during the attack on Jamerson to try to pull him away, but DJ kept on like he didn't hear a word I said. When police tried to convince the witness to give his name, the man refused, explaining that it wasn't just his own life he was concerned about. If they knew I was talking to you, they might kill my whole family, he explained, then added this observation. You police do not realize how powerful Suge Knight is. Going up against Suge or any of his people is like going up against the Mafia. It's a death sentence. Despite what looked like an overwhelming case against DJ Quick and strong cases against Jake, who had been seen leaving the El Rey missing one shoe, Buntree and High C, no criminal charges were ever filed in the murder of Kelly Jamerson. The most amazing thing was that there was almost no official explanation of why they weren't arresting anybody, recalled Russell Poole, who had been on temporary assignment to Wiltshire detectives at the time, but was not directly involved in the investigation of the El Rey incident. The DA's office said it was a case of insufficient evidence, but didn't elaborate, and the media barely noticed. It was like the whole thing got swept under the carpet. Detectives at Wilshire Division whispered among themselves that this was a political decision. The Rodney King riots and the O.J. Simpson trial had left Los Angeles so traumatized that the threat of racial conflict in any form sent shudders of dread through L.A.'s civic leadership. At that time, Suge Knight was being portrayed as one of the most important black entrepreneurs in the country, and anyone who criticized him could expect to be called a racist, Poole remembered. Knight also had powerful political allies, including the most influential black office holder in Southern California, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who earlier that year had responded to questions about the death row records CEO's alleged criminal activities by telling reporters, the only thing Suge is threatening is the status quo. The most troubling report made by a witness who had been present at the El Rey Theater during the killing of Kelly Jamerson, Russell Poole would learn, never became part of the official case file. The witness in this instance was a Long Beach Police Department officer who had infiltrated death row records as the agent of a federal task force, probing allegations that Suge Knight and his record label were heavily involved in drug dealing and illegal gun sales. 
According to the task force agent, a number of off-duty police officers, including members of the Los Angeles Police Department, had been working without permits as bodyguards at the El Rey party. These officers not only failed to rescue Kelly Jamerson, the task force agent said, but all left the theater without identifying themselves to uniformed cops on the scene and never reported later that they had been present when Jamerson was killed. Poole would not see the task force agent's report until he was nearly finished with his investigation of the Gaines Liga shooting, and even then the report was not provided to him by either his supervisors or any other member of the department's brass. What it told me when I read it was that the LAPD had known for at least two years that some of our officers were working for death row records, Poole recalled. With all the stuff that had come out about Kevin Gaines's connection to death row, you'd think the brass would have wanted the detectives investigating Gaines to know about this. But, in fact, the opposite was true. They wanted to keep it hidden from us. That really started me wondering what the hell was going on. The task force agent's report related at length the stories he had been told by other death row employees about the company's involvement in drug trafficking. Before starting death row, Suge Knight had made most of his money by dealing drugs he stole from Hispanic suppliers, according to the task force agent's sources. Suge's record company had been started with drug money, other death row employees said, and since its inception it had served as a kind of clearinghouse for the transport of cocaine from the West Coast to the East Coast by members of the Bloods gang. The agent's report went on to state that the gangbangers paid $18,500 for a kilo of coke in L.A. and sold it to rappers in New York for $26,000. I already had heard from a number of sources that Suge Knight regularly paid some of his performers with drugs that they could deal instead of checks, Poole said. So I found the information in the task force agent's report pretty plausible. On the basis of such stories, Poole and Miller had arranged within 48 hours of Kevin Gaines's death for a drug-sniffing dog from the LAPD's narcotics group to check the green Montero. According to official police reports, the dog showed strong interest for the odor of narcotics in the rear passenger area of the Montero. The narco guys told us they were sure that cocaine had been transported in this vehicle, Poole recalled, but all they could find was dust. On March 31st, Poole received a memo from a black LAPD officer named Stuart Guidry. According to Guidry, an informant who was an inmate at Lancaster State Prison and insisted that he had loaned Suge Knight the money to start death row records, claimed to know a good deal about Kevin Gaines's involvement with the record company. The inmate stated Officer Gaines and other LAPD officers provided security for members of death row records during various criminal activities, Guidry's report read. The officers accompanied the members during drug deals and acted as lookouts and advisors. The officers monitored police frequencies, assisted in choosing locations for drug transactions, and gave information on police tactics. The inmate stated he was not surprised at Officer Gaines' death, but he believed it would be from someone else as opposed to a fellow officer. The inmate also stated, just wait until they search his house and see all the expensive things he got from working for death row. Poole immediately renewed his request for an expanded investigation of Kevin Gaines's background and activities. My superiors, though, said there was not enough probable cause for a search warrant, Poole recalled. It was total bullshit. 
We got Gaines transporting drugs. We got him stiffing in a 911 call and assaulting cops at the scene. We have four other roadway incidents. We have him linked directly to death row records in Suge Knight. I wrote a 20-page report detailing all this stuff, but still couldn't get a warrant to search either Gaines's home or his financial records. The average citizen's home would have been raided by a whole squad of cops on the basis of what we had. I knew the decision was coming straight down from Chief Parks. My superiors, though, just kept telling me, Gaines is dead, let's forget about it. Kevin Gaines's name kept popping up, however. One day after reading Officer Guidry's memo, Poole received a phone call from a detective in Wilshire Division advising him that homicide investigators there had information suggesting that Gaines might be involved in the recent assassination of rapper Biggie Smalls. They needed a recent picture of Gaines, the Wilshire detective said, to use in a six-pack photo lineup. This phone call was one of the main reasons that Poole readily agreed on the morning of April 9, 1997, to take over as lead investigator in the Biggie Smalls murder investigation. And that is where we will resume next Thursday. Uh, context of white supremacy will pick up chapter, whoop, part two, death row inmates, and then chapter three. So all of that is for next week when we get into the assassinations. Christopher Wallace, Tupac Shakur, how they are related to all of this context of white supremacy. I'll uh, finish the email from one of our investors and then uh, nab callers and such. Number again is 720-716-7300. Let's see. Chapter two. Uh, investor writes in. One, only a detective who has been sponsored could win an assignment to RHD and only and the only detectives who got sponsors pool discovered were golfers. I don't want to hear anything more about LAPD being the best in law enforcement. I guess, yeah, that's uh, the system of meritocracy uh, that you got to have. Uh, you don't even have space in your vehicle for proper enforcement equipment because you got your, your nine iron. I mean, <sighs> number two. Most famous homicide detective in LAPD history, Jigsaw St. John, coasted for the last 15 or 20 years, work from 7 to 11 in the morning, then go out for a martini at lunch. More white male affirmative action. Sobriety would be best. Feel like I've had to say that a lot today. Wow. Number three. <clears throat> uh, Fred, uh, Fred finds out that Johnny Cochran is involved in gains. Liga, he is scared to death, doesn't want to find himself in a courtroom being cross-examined by Cochran. Speaks again to the brilliance of Mr. Cochran. Agreed, and I'm of the opinion, I mean, hey, stand by your work. If what I did was just inaccurate, this Negro was out of control, he brandished a firearm, you know, he was not acting uh, in a civil a uh, reasonable manner. He chased me down. I tried to, you know, drive away and he chased me down, uh, cursing at me and all that, threatening me. If that's really what happened, what is Johnny Cochran going to do? You know, 
there's no he doesn't have any voodoo negro magic all he can do is uh, well (sighs) negro should have behaved himself I guess oh well (laughs) you know what is he gonna do like come on come on Uh, let's see folks who dialed in uh, with the hand up if you have commentary feel free to share uh, retired firefighter Henry in Chicago Bay Area mom if we have folks that didn't get to share at all if you have commentary you would like to chime in do not wait until the last five uh, other folks with a hand up proceed give folks a moment to get their thoughts together uh, if they need so let's see while they are pondering can I can I be heard retired firefighter yes sir yeah, uh, according to the uh, the writer, it, it appears that uh, more than half of uh, the non-white black law enforcement officers are working for Suge Knight <laughs> uh, and working in a capacity to uh, to uh, help uh, operate a a uh, a, uh, a mafia like. Uh, uh, business, you know, as, as far as that's concerned, based if, if this writer had anything to do with it, you know, and uh, just you know, just more of the uh, the uh, uh, deception uh, that white people uh, uh, initiate in order to uh, advance racism, white supremacy in uh in labor uh it, it's a you know long standing tradition and strategy uh especially in this case on county county or city uh employment uh not just the police department uh it, it takes place on on just about all of these uh County and city jobs across this part of the world, as far as how they uh, are able to to uh, maintain the system of racist white supremacy uh, by uh, making these type of uh, 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 reports on the 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 uh, assistance that black black people have in in law enforcement with with criminals, that sort of thing, and uh, and I mean, and, and what what uh, white people do uh, themselves, as well as on these jobs, is actually the foundation of all of that, you know. And uh, but anyway, that's what it seems like with this particular uh, writer in the way that the 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 way that this book is being uh formed as far as the narrative is concerned thank you got uh the entire staff of death row alonzo harris got their badge in one pocket and out here doing nefarious activity with suge knight for the rest of it My right goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Suge Knight runs all of the black police officers. He he, he has all of them on his on his payroll. 
the only thing I say, you know, hey, I guess that could be true, although that seems like a bit of a stretch, but, you know, that, I guess, it could be true, but man, oh man, like, if there is a system of white supremacy, same thing I said at the beginning, why, oh why, is Suge Knight, out of all of the niggers on the plantation, why would he and his cohorts be above the law? What's so special about them? Like, what, uh, what do they have that would allow white people to, oh, oh, he's with Suge Knight, oh, better leave it alone. But he killed, just leave it alone. Like, what? Wait a minute now. Come on. That's, at minimum, that is very unusual. Not a whole lot of black people like that on the plantation. Uh, let's see. We'll see if any other folks have a comment or two. Get my notes together as well for the second chapter. Let's see. For chapter two, we get back to O.J. Simpson. Uh, so he starts off, he says, after watching Tom Lang and Phil Van Adder, folks have a good memory. So these are two of the initial detectives, or these are the t- uh, lead detectives on the case. And they were with the group that lied, hopped the fence with no warrant. Uh, and then Mark, oh my goodness, I found this bloody glove. That's uh, the group. Uh, and they lied on the search warrant and what have you. Remember Johnny Cochran, he had a big chart during closing arguments and pointed out all the different times and ways that they lied uh, during the process of the investigation. That's Lang and Van Atta that we're supposed to feel sorry after watching what Lang and Van and they wrote a book about all this too uh, Lang and Van Atta were put through on the witness stand and in the media and the way they went into retirement under this giant cloud that's in the word God of controversy Poole explained a lot of the older robbery homicide detectives uh, but Fred especially made up their minds that they were not going to enter a case like this at the end of their careers. Uh, again, power to uh, Johnny Cochran, but I mean, really, Lang and Van Anner, they are not sympathetic feeder figures at all. As I said, they lied on the search warrant, hopped the uh, wall and lied about it. There was so many points. Uh, where you guys could have been been, uh, honest about things. They lied and said that O.J. Simpson had mysteriously went out of town when he had a planned trip for Chicago weeks in advance. They lied at so many points, and Johnny Cochran and his brilliant staff, F. Lee Bailey, they pointed all that out, their repeated lies uh, of these white guys. No, they should have been truthful. Wouldn't have had this problem. Be a police officer. Let's see. Uh, Now, even Poole says he's thinking, hey, let's investigate. It seems like they're connected to death row. Let's follow, see what the evidence shows. He says, hey, do what you're told. He says, I'm fairly new and I don't want to rock the boat. I'm still getting acclimated to working downtown. But I'm thinking, is this the way it works in robbery homicide? No wonder they got embarrassed in the OJ trial. There's a bad taste in my mouth, but I'm sure the truth will come out eventually. Exactly what I just said. This is not about truth. This is just about making up stuff. Sometimes it seems 
we just are going to say that this person did it regardless. Geronimo Pratt, O.J. Simpson, regardless of the evidence, we're just going to insist that this person did it and lie and make up evidence and whatever else. And, you know, especially if it's a black person. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> And if that's the case, that's not a reason to feel sorry. That's no reason to feel sympathetic for someone if they just lie and are not willing to do their job in a professional manner, which was a big thing in the O.J. Simpson case. Even the last case, Geronimo Pratt, but that was more deception. Anywho, uh, 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 within the rank and file of the LAPD, stories had been circulating for several years that there was a growing cadre of black officers whose involvement with death row records superseded their loyalty to the department. Now pause right there, particularly we're reading this in light of the January 6th insurrection. There were police officers from all over the country, including Seattle, who were at the January 6th insurrection. Now where are their loyalties? Where is the sentence saying that, hey, it seems like there is not rumors, evidence that many of these white officers are more loyal to the system of white supremacy racism as opposed to LAPD. Where is that report at? No, we just got these Negro officers. The few of them that there are where he had already had to say that, hey, we didn't even allow black officers to begin with. And then we added a few and started backsliding from there and all this. And we only work, let them work from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. And they can't arrest the white people and all the. I mean, all of this. And now we've got the mighty powerful Kevin Gaineses who are rogue officers more loyal to death row than the LAPD and nothing can be done about them come on let's see sobriety would be best I keep saying it they said that they had this uh, murder of a black male lots of black males killed in this year Uh, the 1995 murder uh, at the El Rey Theater sobriety would be best I just say that uh, again uh, in the worthlessness of black life there may have been it may have been what they described where you have uh, black people who are present who are working for uh, Suge Knight security or affiliated with him in some way <clears throat> and they're also LAPD <clears throat> maybe they're off duty or whatever it is they're present and they don't do anything to intervene uh, when this black male uh, is killed that absolutely could be uh, the case again why would this organization be allowed to operate in this manner and again I think back Julius Butler beating up Ollie Taylor accused of beating up other black males why is he allowed to function in this in this manner for years and be protected why is that same thing for death row Suge Knight affiliates <clears throat> let's see both harmful to black people. It'd be very different if they were saying Suge Knight was doing these sort of things to white people. I would really have some extraordinary suspicions, but that's not been reported. Uh, let's see. The names of black people. I thought a lot of the Black Panther uh, members had really odd names and such, as we were reading when they're giving the list of DJ Quick's uh, personnel and bodyguard members, Suge Knight's entourage and such uh, so we got Alt- Alton Bunchery McDonald Crawford High C Wilkerson like High C uh, like the beverage um, let's see Jai Hassan uh, Jamal 
aka Jake the Violator, Robles, and Ronald Ram Lamb. Um, I don't know. I don't want to be named after a high fructose corn syrup beverage. Um, I don't want to be called Gus the Violator. Like, uh, I don't know, like the way they, these black males get these names, like, woof, they are not endearing at all. Uh, let's see. All right, you go, uh, you police do not realize how powerful Suge Knight is going up against Suge or any of his people is like going up against the mafia. It's a death sentence. Again, we're in a system of white supremacy, the mafia, racist man, racist woman, the white race. I just... Suge Knight, really? The Mafia, they tend to last for a long time. Suge Knight certainly doesn't have an empire now. Not that long ago. Uh, Let's see. Let's see. So they're explaining. So they're not going to... Nobody gets arrested for this murder. Um... total, you know, black misandry, worthlessness of black life. Detectives at Wilshire Division whispered among themselves that this was a political decision. The Rodney King riots and the O.J. Simpson trial had left Los Angeles so traumatized that the threat of racial conflict in any form sent shudders of dread through L.A.'s civic leadership. I don't know what they mean by left Los Angeles traumatized. Like, do they mean black people in LA do they mean non-white people do they mean white people do they mean everybody traumatized how I mean I don't know uh was Johnny Cochran traumatized like from the OJ Simpson trial like I don't know um I, I don't know I would just have a hard time processing what all of that means and to think that in 1997 white people would be shuddering in LA about you know oh my goodness we can't do this and we can't investigate this black person and we can't charge these black people because we'll be called racist that just I think that is greatly overblown uh, white people normally just shrug that off and keep it moving you niggers can't prove that I'm a racist and just because you say it doesn't move, mean anything moving on and continue with their tasks so yeah that I don't I don't really know what to say about that other than yeah <laughs> like yeah yeah, white people uh, generally are not that motivated around just being accused of being racist. Something to think about, but not that big an obstacle. Uh, Suge Knight was being portrayed as one of the most important black entrepreneurs in the country. I don't know. Anyone who criticized him could expect to be called a racist. Paul remembered. I mean, what? <laughs> I don't. I just, uh, contraire, mon frere, people would have to give me evidence. See, that's one you would have to give me evidence. Like, I recall many, many, I'll put it this way. <laughs> Circa 1997, that's when we're talking about. I My suspicion would be there are a substantial number of black people. If your daughter came home with Suge Knight, they would be appalled. Like, I think a large number of black people did not think of Suge Knight then or now as some sort of respectable entrepreneur uh, who was doing wonderful things for black. Maxine, I'm even surprised. Maxine Waters, I thought she was one of the ones who was not about all that filth and so-called rap music and all that, but neither here nor there. Um, I just, yeah, that... (laughs) 
I don't know. I, I, it would be hard to imagine someone calls Suge Knight like a thug or a no count so and so and blah blah blah. Like at that time, like oh my gosh, we we got a band together. They have called Suge Knight, you know, uh, a ragamuffin, and we're not going to take it. We're, we'll call up Al Sharpton. We're Al Sharpton. We're getting a protest together, and we're going out to boycott such and such. I shut what for <laughs> Suge Knight. Michael Jordan, baby, I can see, but Suge Knight? Tiger Woods, like, okay, okay, Suge Knight? Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, I guess I can, guess I can leave it there until next week. Again, uh, I'm not saying that Death Row is like a kindergarten nursery. I'm not saying that Suge Knight is a swell guy. What I am saying, the same thing with Julius Butler. When you have non-white people, particularly black people, are allowed to do these things that, as they said, if this had been normal circumstances, this would not have happened. That is unusual, especially when it's harmful to black people. That is unusual, deserves inspection. It would be racists are most to blame. Then it would even start to be now, why are racists, white people, giving, affording Suge Knight and his ilk this sort of immunity on the plantation? What is he providing for them? The chronic death row records black male in the electric chair that's going to be our logo that right there tells you a lot like what what service are they providing in a system of white supremacy that would provide them with all of these goodies at death row records we'll come back to all of that next week where i guess we get to pick up with the murder of Christopher Wallace aka Biggie Smalls Notorious B.I.G. Reading more important than watching television but again this book is the basis for the film 2018 City of Lies. Again it really confounded me when I learned like wait a minute so Forrest Whitaker black male is portraying the fictional version of Randall Sullivan the author of this book like what (laughs) it just it greatly confused me uh so we'll have to talk about that as we proceed as well anywho much obliged for everyone's uh participation first week around uh we'll have quite a bit more to go uh in labyrinth uh you can check out the film and all the rest of it as we kind of make our notes plotting through the text uh we'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism same time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific and saturday the compensatory call-in will catch up on news and observations from the past week all of that said (laughs) sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy in addition to being sober if you're out and about they they had a report I believe a six-year-old was shot this week trying to get his bike Michigan area be alert all I can say very dangerous year lots of armed folks white and non-white 
lots of armed people out and about just have to be very mindful uh, when you're outside unsafe times for everyone attempted males attempted females children very dangerous times on the plantation uh, if you are going out same thing I've been saying for a while unless you leave the house with the intention I plan on killing and or dying and or I am ready to do so even if that's not going to happen but I'm ready to do so if that's not truthfully the case exit anytime it looks like there's some rowdy stranger hostile and all the rest of it exit you have no idea now was this fella was this gal here was she at the gun range 100% score is this her got to think about that especially now they said lots of women gun owners you got to think about that in addition to being sober and all the rest of it if you're driving you're not on the cell phone uh, we need all of our attention to be alert and then we also <clears throat> are trying to do the small things to minimize contact with the Mark Furmans of the known universe that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother i'm a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning Mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.